In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee, heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present, and fillest all things, O Treasure of a good and bestower of life. Come and dwell us, and cleanse the very stain, and save our souls, a good one. With God's help, we've come now to the second year of these talks that are in English. And at the end of last year, for the last few months, we had the blessing of listening to the life, the encounters with and teachings of uh, Elder Paisios, which is a Greek saint which died in 1994, but he wasn't can has not been canonised yet. There's saints everywhere. There's saints in Russia, Serbia, Greece... Egypt, where, wherever there are Orthodox Christians, we have great saints. So it would be blasphemy for us to say that, firstly, saints don't exist, or that saints existed many years ago, like St. George or St. Stephen or the Apostles, but they don't exist now. The elder that we're going to do today, Elder Porfirios, he died in 1991, so he really, it's only been around 17 years ago, and this priest monk, as we have the, his picture there in front, has been, it's been said that he is one of the greatest saints that the Greek church has produced. So orthodoxy is not a dead religion. Orthodoxy is a religion which is alive, for those who want it. As I said to you last year, when the Patriarch of um, Russia died, and they had some comments about it, I saw some things on the uh, internet from some Russia Today, I think it's a news, a news thing, and they were speaking to a priest of the Moscow Patriarchate and was saying to him, in the West, like in America, in England, Australia, the churches are emptying. But in Russia where they had atheism for so many generations, 70 years of atheism, and it was taught in schools. So basically, to believe in Russia was very difficult because the kids were brainwashed from young, from school, going to church when a lot of times was forbidden, etc. But even though those people went through that, they are finding now that in Russia that the churches have been filled not by old women and old men, but by married people, young people, youth, young girls, young women, uh, newly married people and their children. And the Western churches, especially the Catholics and the Anglicans and Protestants, like they're saying, what's the secret? Why is it that the Orthodox churches are being filled? And the same thing happened in Serbia when communism collapsed. A lot of young people started going to church. A lot of young people started becoming monks and nuns. Now, remember, the communism was not as bad in Serbia as it was in Russia. The worst communism was in Albania. But nevertheless, when I went to Serbia in 1991, which I think around that time is where a lot of that communism was falling apart, I noticed that in the monasteries were young people and people who were educated. 
people that had studied at university and had come to the church and said, I want to devote myself to Christ. And a lot of them became monks and nuns and very educated people. So not that you have to be educated to become a monk, but I'm just trying to say that people started coming in. So orthodoxy is a religion which is alive. Orthodoxy is a religion which is miraculous. It's, it's got power. It's not dead. And those who try to live an orthodox life will experience that themselves. Let's now begin with the life of Elder Porfirios. Firstly, I would like to say that I'd like to thank you, not like some people say, oh, thank you for coming, I'm not into that. Um, I'd like to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to actually sit down and prepare and read this, because read this. when you read a book, like when you go to school, if you read chemistry or whatever, maths, and, and you don't put it into practice, you kind of don't really remember. And uh, when you read a spiritual book for yourself, you can actually miss out on a lot of things. However, when I'm reading the book, because I know I have to then present it to you people, I have to really look at it well and really understand it. And by doing that, I begin to understand it better myself. So that is actually good. And now, hopefully, with God's help and the elders' prayers, you also receive the benefit of listening to and see how a saint is, how a saint comes about in the Orthodox Church. Now, the elder was born on the 7th of February 1906 in the village of St. John near Aliveri in the province of Evia. Now, this is particularly special for me because my mother turns out to come from the island of Evia, which is a very large island in Greece. I think it's second after Crete, but don't quote me. And Aliveri is one of the main towns. So if Evia is like long ways like that, Aliveri is around here. My mother's village is a few villages down from that. And the elder's village was up there, up this way. So you might say, does that make you special because your mum comes and says, no, but we like to relate to things. Like I said last time, when I went to, when I was doing the life of Elder Paisios from Manathos, because I've been to Manathos, it became more, for me, meaningful because I understood what they, were speak, what they were talking about. And here, these areas that they're speaking about, I know because I've been there. But anyway, his father's name was Lunidas and his mother's name was Eleni. Why that's good to listen to that is because to show that a saint is a human being. That's why they say, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not, we can leave out the fact his mother and father just get straight into the life. But a lot of times the people who write the life of saint, they like to mention his father's name, his mother's name, maybe his sisters and brothers. Why? To show that a saint is a human being. Because a lot of times we think that a saint is something else. People, when I was young, because I didn't go to church from, from young, and I used to see icons, um, because I wasn't brought up in the church, no one actually taught me, I didn't know what, what they were. I thought they were, I didn't even know what they were, what were they, I didn't even know. I just didn't register what is St. George or what is that, that they are actually human beings. At baptism, he was given the name Evangelos. 
He was the fourth of five children. One of them died, so there was five children that his parents had, but one of them actually passed away, and uh, that was the older one, his older, so the older sister. And also his younger sister turned out to become a nun later on in life. So that's interesting that these two parents produced not engineers, not teachers or doctors, which is, that's, that's okay. But the most important thing for these parents was to produce saints, to produce holy people. That's the most important thing. But today parents have as their main aim, it doesn't matter about the virtue. It doesn't matter if the child believes in God much. Maybe if he does his cross before he goes to bed, that's okay. But the most important thing is that the child gets a good job, gets good money, etc. And you might say, well, isn't that important? I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm saying it's not the most important. The most important is for the children to be brought up holy, spiritual. And his father, it's interesting that his father wanted to become a monk when he was young, but it didn't happen. His father, I'm not saying his mother wasn't pious, but it looks like his father was extremely religious. And God arranged it that the eldest father, Evangelos' father, helped Saint Nectarius, which is the great, one, another great saint of the um, Orthodox Church, Saint Nectarius, who, when he was thrown out of Egypt because of slander, he was a bishop, he got a job as a preacher in Evia. And this elder's father used to chant for him during his time when he was in Evia. Another thing which is quite interesting, which happened a lot, is that because they were very poor, his father had to leave Greece and go to America to work on the construction of the Panama Canal. Now that I understand because my mother's father, from what I remember, I don't know him because he passed, passed away before me, but what I heard was that he got married in the village and then he went to America. So he had the first child, went to America, worked there for a while to get money, came back, then had the second child, which was my mother, and then he went to France, then he worked there, then he came back and had the third child and went to Australia and came to Australia and never went back again. And that was all because of the fact that they were very, very poor. So it's the same thing here is that it was a way of life. Some people still do it, but you can imagine the pain of that woman, the saint's mother, to actually have no husband for such a long period of time when he was in America. My grandmother used to say, I don't even remember my husband. I don't remember him. I, don't, I remember getting married a little bit, but I don't remember because she passed away many, many years after. So this was a way of life in Greece. A lot of men used to go and work at, at other, in other countries to bring back money for that because Greece was very poor. I'm sure the same thing probably happened in Serbia, but being not Serbian did. It used to happen a lot. So he went to school because each village had a school, and the school some depends on the situation, the money, it was very poorly run, and the teacher was always sick. So the, the young evangelist really only got about a year and a bit 
of education. That's all. First class. Maybe, maybe a little bit of second class. That's all he got. So because it was a waste of time, he uh, left school. And again, I know that a lot of the older Greeks didn't go to school at all. So a lot of the ones from the villages, the ones that are now very, very old, maybe some of them didn't be, weren't educated at all, and some of the ones later on went to school up to about sixth class. But in this case, they just had a bit of a, a bad time because his teacher was always sick, and therefore the elder, the future elder, was quite uneducated. So he left school and started to help more with his parents' farm, farming life, just like it is in other countries. A lot of the, a lot of these, um, a lot of them had animals, fields, and they took care of all that. And he did that, and he started to actually go and work to get money at around seven years old. Now today it's hard to make someone work even at seventeen. And you'd be lucky to get someone to work at 27. So the, here, this young boy, at seven years old, he began to work. Now, near Aliveri, if I remember right, there's a coal mine, because a lot of my relatives worked there. And he went and worked in the coal mine. Later on, he was sent to the capital of the island of Evia, which is Harkida, where he worked in like a grocery shop. And then uh, shortly after that, he went to Piraeus, which is in Athens, and he worked there as well in another type of grocery shop tavern when he was around nine. So he started to work. Because of this, the, he, because he had to work and he had a lot of responsibilities, he began to shave at around eight. Now, I spoke to someone here who said that a fellow at work, his father died and he had to help a lot with his younger brothers and sisters, he started shaving at around nine. What I find really peculiar is that when you see people who are 25, 30, with no responsibilities because they're not married maybe, or they're just irresponsible, their mother does everything for them, cooks, clean, washes their clothes, etc. And their mothers think that they're doing, them, doing their children a favour, but they're actually destroying the child. A lot of those people, unless they've gone through alcohol, drugs, etc., but a lot of those people, where well, they look older, but a lot of them actually look very young. And the parents are so proud and saying, look at my son, you know, he's 25 but he looks 18 or something like that. It's not really something to boast about. The reason why is because he's irresponsible a lot of times. Parents believe, especially European parents, Australians are a little bit, well, we're Australian, but the Anglo-Saxon Australians are a bit different. They like to make their children do a bit of work. It's called chores, old-fashioned word. But today, that's not really done that much. And a lot of times, the parents serve the children up to a very old age and make them worthless for the future. That's why a lot of them can't get married, because when they do get married and they've got to do things, they don't know what to do. I remember someone telling me that they got married, or someone, someone got married, and after the first day, the woman said, I'm, I'm divorcing. Why? Because I've I got to wash clothes and I'm not, I'm not used to that. So this future saint, because we're, we're talking about he became, this future saint, we can see was responsible from young 
and work. Now, someone might say, does that mean you're telling us to send our children to go and work at seven years old? They don't have to go and work at seven years old. If McDonald's could do it, they'll do it, because that would have to pay only a dollar an hour. But they, the, the laws around, I don't know, what is it, 14 or something? So uh, maybe one day for changes, though, they'll, they will get that. But the point is here is that they don't have to go and work, but they can do things at home, and that's a big sin when parents are teaching their children to be worthless. And I do mean worthless. It's, it's quite... People say, why are people divorcing today and why aren't marriages working? There are a lot of reasons for that. One of the main reasons is that people, these people who grow up out of those families, don't know how to take care of themselves and they don't know how to take care of anyone else. And that is a reason why. When I see someone who's been brought up like that and they come to me and they go, I want to get married, and I say, stop, don't get married, because it will be a disaster. And then some people say, oh, but when they get married, they'll become better. They'll learn. They'll become more responsible. I know someone, they, someone might say, I know someone who did that. Yes, but that's like a lottery ticket. Might happen. One in a million chance. As much as chance you've got winning those lottos that people buy, that's as much you've got chance of someone who was worthless from young who, get, who gets married and actually be able to take care of a family. But we've, we've already discussed that in those talks, talks number uh, 12 and 13, which we did, and that's there in detail. His father, being a religious man, taught his son the paraclesis, which is the canon of the mother of God, which is what we just sang just now. So from young, even though he couldn't read properly, a lot of the Christians used to learn things off by heart. They used to listen to it, practice it, and learn it off by heart. And he tried to teach him whatever he could, because maybe the father was himself quite, you know, he was a chanter, but he might have been, you know, a little un un uneducated. So as a child, he did develop quickly. While he was looking after the sheep, and while he was working later on in the grocery store, he had a little book that someone gave him. It was the book about St. John the Hut Dweller, how this young boy ran away from his parents and he wanted to become a monk. And he would read this book while he tried very, very, very slowly. He really tried to learn how to read by reading the lives of saints. In the old days, that's how children learnt. They learnt to read and write using religious books. Today, we use you know, like Bugs Bunnies and all these type of things, which is, which is really, one can say sarcastically, really moral. Like you learn a lot by teaching the children from those, from those um, books. In other words, that's not a good thing to teach children from young from those books which have no meaning, they have no significance. He learned to read more using the life of saints. While he was working at Piraeus, he made two attempts, but failed, to go to Mount Athos. Now, Mount Athos, some of you will know, God, I think you say it in, in, in um, Serbian, I think, is a holy place. It's a peninsula in Greece, a very long peninsula, which has around 20 monasteries and a lot of houses and skeets, etc. on there, where all monks live. Women aren't allowed on there. It's a place dedicated. The mother of God herself chose that and said, whoever goes there and struggles, I will help them to be saved. So that's a special place in Greece. It's called Manaphos. Now, 
Even though it's in Greece, it doesn't mean that he knew it. He actually admits himself, Evangelos, the young, well, later on when he's, when, as, a, as, as an elder, he says, I never even heard of Manathos. I didn't even know what monks were. Remember, these people, when they lived in villages, were cut off. If the village didn't have a, ch a monastery nearby, a lot of times they didn't know. I purposely rang up my auntie because she's still alive and um, she was brought up in those type of circumstances. She'd be, she's about 85 now. And she said that in the village, she's my mother's cousin, she actually said that they had never seen cars until they got older. And when they used to see the taxi come now and then because the roads were very bad, the roads weren't opened yet, they said that we used to get scared and run away because we thought the car was going to you know, cut us in half or something. They were so scared because they never had seen that because they were cut off a lot. To go and get groceries from the town Aliveri, they used to leave early in the morning before the sun, really dark, maybe after midnight, who knows what time they used to leave, and if their donkeys would go and take hours and hours and hours to go to the town, buy provisions, and then go back to the village before it went dark. So it's very interesting to see that, and why I'm saying this because it's it's interesting to see how the saint was actually brought up, because that's the same thing. It was interesting to... I will, I'll, I'll share this with you, not to try and boost anything up, but just to say it's actually interesting that they were very simple in those days. The, 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 young, the young children were very, very simple. They weren't uh, as corrupt as they are now due to television, education, etc., where they teach kids too much and disturb them. Oh, very simple. And I remember my mother and my auntie actually told me a story that when they were going from the village to go to the town, Aliveri there, uh, it was no, there was no moon. Or the moon was covered, I don't know, it was very dark. And a lot of you that have been brought up in villages would know West Sport because we've got traffic lights, only, sorry, not traffic lights, all lights. So we wouldn't really know a lot of times that when it's dark, you can't see unless there's a blackout. And then we know, we can see, ooh, this is very dark. I mean, you don't, sometimes we're just so spoiled by having all these lights, we don't even know what it's like. But anyway, when the sun, when the moon is being covered up, it's so dark they can't see in front. So one day as they were going along with their donkeys, it was my mother, her cousin, which was Marnie, and another lady, an older lady. The, the, the two girls were a bit young. Going along, but it was so dark. And they said that they couldn't see. It was, there was no way they could actually proceed. It was very scary. And they could have hurt themselves because it could have actually walked off, the, walked off a cliff because it was all mountains and things. Suddenly, they said a light came from the, what they said from the sky and shone on the road. And they used that light to be able to get to their destination. Now, I knew that my mother and auntie weren't that religious when they were young. So I had a suspicion. I go, hmm, must have been, must be something to do with that woman that they were with. Who was she? So I asked them, who was that lady that you were with? She says, oh, she used to take care of the church. She was devoted to the church. So what I worked out is, that that woman, being very religious, must have prayed and God helped them. But for them, even what they experienced wasn't something to become proud about because they were very, very simple. So in those days, faith was simple, miracles used to occur, 
and it was part of their life. It wasn't something which made them to get proud and things like that. Like for us today, we get proud for anything and, every, and, and everything. And that's why God does not give us many gifts, because if he did, we would destroy ourselves. So that his first attempt, after he heard about Manathos, he had this desire. He says, I want to become a monk. And also because he read the book. He didn't know how to get there. He had no money. He didn't know how to anything. And he didn't know what to say to his boss at the shop. Remember, he was in Athens now, Piraeus. Then let's quote what the, what the saint himself says. This is what he says himself about the bat. He says, for, for, for days on end, I was depressed, lost in thought. My boss noticed it. He came up to me and said, why are you unhappy? What's the matter? I'm afraid I couldn't help telling a lie. I said that I heard from someone from my village that my mother was ill and I wanted to go and see her. So he lied. He believed my story and gave me some money and, my, and a ticket and said, you go and see your mother. He also gave me some food to take to her and shown his sympathy. He took me along the road and wished me a good journey. Now, interesting here that this future saint lied. And what does that show? It shows a lie is a lie. It's still a sin. However, only God is without sin. So even the saints made mistakes. Even the saints committed sins, but they repented, etc. And plus, he was only a young child. At the time that this happened, he might have only been around... Um, it doesn't say how long these, this period was that he tried to make attempts. It might have been about 10, 11 maybe. He believed the, uh, he, and he believed the stories, as I said. I, so I ran down to the boat and I began to realise my dream that I'm going to go to Mount Athos and become a monk. When the boat left, I felt miserable and I was afraid and felt sorry for my parents. So he's, he was starting to think, I'm going to go to Mount Athos, but that means I'll never see my parents again. And they would become sick from worry. I couldn't do it. When the boat arrived at Evia, because to go to Manathos, the boat used to leave from Piraeus, go to Evia, go Volos, go to Thessaloniki, and then to Manathos. When it came to the first stop, he got off, and then instead of going to Manathos or to his parents, he went back and went to the shop and said to his boss, I saw my mother and she's, and she's well. Now, and then, then he made another attempt. So he carried, he, so he says, and I, so I carried on work as before, but I, again I was thoughtful. I prayed continually, I ate little, I did a lot of prostrations, and as a result of this, I lost weight. I changed. People would ask me, what is the matter? What's wrong? We can see that there is something on your mind and you have lost a lot of weight. That's what people who have um, melancholy and things like that, you can actually become quite sick. Psychological sicknesses can affect the body. A lot of times now doctors start, well it's about time, but they're starting to see that when someone comes with some problems, it might not be from a physical problem, it might be from a psychological problem. And that can affect the body, it can affect the stomach, it can give you headaches, it can make you weak. But sometimes when the doctors can't find that, then it might be a spiritual problem. So that's uh, something which needs discernment to actually know. What is it? Is it just purely psychological? Is it spiritual? Is it demonic? What's, it's very hard sometimes to know what it is. But in the church, when someone goes to church, starts leading a spiritual life, then those things usually start to show what's happening. And the boss said to him, you know, we like you and we want you here, but perhaps you want to go back to your parents. 
And, he, and yes, I answered, I want to go home. So once again, they gave me money, food and sweets. My boss took me down to the boat and bought me a ticket for Halkida. So the boat arrives at Halkida, so he had to get off, but he wanted to go on. So what he did was, when he, when he heard the sailor say, anyone for Halkida, you know, they, they call out, this is Halkida, out, those who, those who are for here. What did he do? He said, I kept my mouth shut and didn't say a word, and I had snuggled up in a corner and kept quiet. So he hid there. Later, the sailors discovered me because they were checking the tickets and said, why didn't you get off at Halkida? I was sleeping, I replied, so they took me along without pain. So again, he lied. He again thought about his parents and his brothers and sisters, and he cried and decided to leave to go back to his work. That's the second attempt. Now let's look at the third attempt. Finally, when, I was a, when he was about 12 years old, he again left for Manaphos. This time he was determined to make it. And this time he did. Now, of course, 12 years old is very young, but we have to understand that you know, 12 years old in those days might be equivalent to 40 today. You see on those current affairs and those today tonights, and you see they've got a lot of things about these stay-at-home children. And they actually, some of them are 30 years old. And there's a lot of them now, like more and more. They're not getting married. They don't go and, you know, make, do anything. They just stay at home. And um, they've got their bedrooms. And it's like they're 16 or 15 years old and they still live at home like that because their parents still cook for them and clean for them, things like that. So that's what I'm saying. So when I said 40, it wasn't, even though some of you laughed, it wasn't meant to be a joke. The people of that age, in those days, were far more mature and sensible than today. Today, the young boys think that it's mature to go and graffiti on trains while it's moving or go and play chicken, which is that they sit on the road and they wait till the car gets close to a truck and they run off and all these things, you know, what do they call those um, jackass type of things that some of you know, it's called and uh, they try to imitate, and they think it's funny, and ha, 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 and he, he. Now, what do we do with kids like that? One, they're bored. Secondly, they're dead because they, no, they haven't got God in them. They're looking for something, and they want to do something which gives them what's called a rush, something which can make them feel. So they jump off cliffs, you know, all those things that they do, and they do all dangerous things. It's natural for a male, because of the way that males are made, the way that God created them, the hormones that they've got, that they are quite aggressive at times and they need to do a lot. And because we live in a, in a society where there's not much work for them to do like there was in the old days, where it's fields and taking care of things and doing heavy work, etc. Um, they, they try to get off their, their steam by doing all these things. And that's why in, the old, in, the, in, like in Greece and Russia and countries like that, where they had conscription, where they used to make people go and do army service, that's, I think that's good. You know, why, why don't they um, see these kids, they try and do all these daredevil things and try to do things which are really scary. You know, why don't they go and join 
the fire brigade or something, and that way they can do, they can run into burning buildings or go and work as a police rescue person where they're hanging off cliffs and do something of prokopi, as they say in Greek, which is worthwhile, instead of running around and riding their BMX bikes off, off their roofs and laughing and thinking that that's really a great thing. So even though the feminists tried to tell us that there's no difference between male and female, and most people were brainwashed from that for many, many years, now we're starting to see, or now they're starting to admit, that males and females are different. Even the way that they think, the way that they feel, there are differences. As I've said, because I used to teach, I've taught at boys' schools, I've taught at girls' schools, and I've taught at co-ed schools. And I know, boys are more aggressive, they're more physical. During their breaks, they're outside, they're playing, they're doing a lot of sports. Girls just sit around and talk, usually. And that's what I noticed. So you parents that have got young kids, you've got to get your children to start doing work, just like the elder did here, or you're going to, and actually Elder Porfirios and Elder Paisios, they both said that the reason for a lot of mental sicknesses today is the lack of physical work, especially since if someone sits in front of the computer or the TV all day and all night and they're not moving, well, what can be left for them? So because he wasn't an adult, in those days there was a rule. You couldn't go onto Mount Athos if you were young. You had to be an adult. But God arranged it because God saw into the heart of the boy. God's providence made it that the young Evangelos met a priest monk who later on would become his elder. His name was Pandelimon, while he was on the ferry. And now let's hear exactly what the elder said in his own words of all about that. He said, they arrived at Manathos, at Daphne. The elder, not the boy, Father Pandelimon, went a little bit further away just to put his, his knapsack down. And at that time, a guard from Manathos, they wear their traditional, they wear those white pleated type of um, skirts and their pom-poms and all that type of things. That's the way that they had it in those days. He actually came up and said to him, you're not allowed on Mount Athos, and threw him back in the boat, and the boat started to go away. Then he, um, he said, what business do you have here, he shouted. Children aren't allowed. Get back to the boat. Off you go. I started to cry, said the elder. The, the, the boat began to pull out. At that moment, however, my elder, his future elder, noticed what was happening and ran shouting, stop, bring the boy back. He's mine. The boat rode back, and I was free. Then the guard said to the um, elder, Father, you're not allowed to take the boy with you. It's forbidden. And then he said, I've no choice but to take him. He's my nephew. Another fib. Said the elder, he's my sister's boy and I can't leave him. He's an orphan. He's nowhere. He has, he has nowhere to go. That's fine, but I'm, I'm the one who'll be in hot water. I can't let the boy in. And then, don't worry, whatever happens, refer the matter to me. I'll speak to the elders of, of, the Man, of Manathos, and you won't get in trouble. So, with the elder, who indeed became my elder, spiritual father, Pandalimon, we went up to the Skeet, which is in Manathos. There are big monasteries, but there's also areas which are called Skeet, which are like villages. They've got one main church in the middle, 
and they've got all these houses. And in each house they might live one, two, three, four, five monks. They've also got little chapels in their houses. During ordinary days they do their services in the chapel of their houses. But when it's a big feast day, all the monks leave their houses and go to the main church. That's what's called the skeet. This skeet was called Kapsukalivia. So the, this father Pandelimon took the boy and they lived there in this skeet. It was a great miracle of God's providence. In many things, God's providence has helped me, but above all, the great assistance I received was that I succeeded in getting to the Holy Mountain at such an early age, in spite of the fact that it was forbidden. I knew nothing about monastic life, but God helped me. As I told you, we arrived at the skeet. From that time onwards, it was a different life, a life in Christ, a life of worship, a life free of care, a life of resurrection. This is exceptional. When someone's going to become a monk or a nun, they, have, they usually have an understanding. They're usually older. Actually, I think the canons say that to become a monk, you should be, or a nun, 18. That's the usual guide. We'll see that he was not. He became younger. This is exceptions. We don't take exceptions and make rules. This is what we do. Sometimes when people read spiritual books, they read Lives of Saints, they'll see something particular for that saint. And they try and say, oh, look, that saint did it. We can do it. But you, but you have to understand that sometimes, as St. Ignatius Branchinov says, a Russian saint, he says, we shouldn't make the exceptions into rules the normal way. The normal way is, obviously, for someone to be older and to be much more mature. I mean, this, this young boy didn't even know really what monastic life was. So that's exceptional. Not something that we actually say that we follow. In the church, there are many exceptions. We take the road of humility, which is we go by the, try and go the middle way. Father Pandilimon took Evangelos with him to Capsucalivia, to the hut which was named after St. George. Every house is named because it's got a chapel. It's named after a saint. In their case, it was named after St. George. Father Pandemon lived there with his brother in the flesh, the, whose name was Father Ioannikios. It'd be good to point out that also the Blessed Hadziorgis, which is actually a saint which Elder Paisios, I'll tell you this, that Elder Paisios wrote a book called the Blessed Hadziorgis, which we have for sale there. He was a great ascetic, a great faster. He was a man of great fasting. And he actually lived in that same house. And for Evangelos, that was a great blessing that he actually lived in the same house as a saint in previous times. In this way, Elder Porfirios acquired two spiritual fathers at the same time. And he gave obedience to both of them. Whatever both of them said, he would do. And in his own words, he said, I was, a, I was in obedience to two elders on the holy mountain. They were strict. I responded to all the chores with eagerness. Whatever they told me to do, I did. I did more than what they asked me to do. They told me off. They used to tell him off as well. However, I felt their love. Now, that's important. That will, that will, that will make more sense later on. In St. Nikolai Velimirovic, in his book, The Prologue, Serbian Hierarch, Saint, he writes there about someone who went to a bishop, I think it was a, a woman, and said, the woman said, send me to someone who can teach me spiritual life. 
So the bishop said, okay, go to that person. So she went to that person, lived there for a while, then the bishop saw her again and go, how are you going? She goes, not very good. She's not, she's not, she's too kind. She's not strict enough with me. So then the bishop said, okay, I'll give you someone else to, take, to help you in the spiritual life. So the bishop gave her to someone else who was very rude, very obnoxious, used to tell her off. And then the bishop said to her, how are you going now? Now I'm going really well. What does that mean? It means that we, including myself, we aren't very spiritual because we don't want someone to tell us off. We don't want someone to tell us our fault a lot of times. We get offended. It's got to the stage where parents can't even tell their children that they've made mistakes. And he speaks about that later on why. But a truly spiritual person, as was the young evangelist, he loved the fact that his elders were strict. Here it comes now. They never praised me as they do today with young children. We constantly say to our children today, well done, well done. And the poor things grow up all puffed up with egos. We do great harm to our children. How's that? This is what the elders say now as an older person. Parents do harm when they praise their children like that. We've spoke about this in other talks. When people come to me, doesn't matter how old they are, I like to speak to them. And I usually like to go back a bit, go back a bit and see their childhood. The worst ones, even worse than the ones, in my opinion, I could be wrong, even worse than the ones that were abused, which is still very bad, children that were abused, like, you know, hit a lot and things like that, the worst ones are the ones that were praised continually. You're good. You can do anything. You're fantastic. And what, what that does a lot of times is a lot of times it's not even true. So the person might be in a sports competition where he can't even swim a lap, and then the parents are going, you can do it, you're really good, you're, you're fantastic. When the child's young, maybe it might believe you because it's young, it doesn't understand. But when it starts getting around 8, 9 and 10, it's going to know that you're pulling its leg and that you're making fun of him and it's going to become, or she, is starting to become sick. Or they get to the other stage where they believe that they're really, really good when there's nothing that they're good at. That's why if you look at those, I always mention it, which is an excellent example, those Australian idols, American idols, and things like that, and you see young kids going, on, going there to audition, and then the parents are usually with them in the um, waiting room, as they're like, it's like their personal, um, what's that guy called, that Robbie, Robin, what's that guy with the microphone that does all the um, talks? Uh, the American guy. That's the one, Mr. The motivation guy. It's like they're him, the parents. And they're saying, you're good. You're good. You're the best. You're going to win. You're going to come first. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. So when these kids go into these auditions and they sing, as I said in the past, like a dog that's been run over and it's dying slowly, if you've heard them, that's not a very nice sound when they're yelping and things like that because that's how some of them sound 
and then the judges say, I'm sorry, but you can't sing, what have they got in their minds? The parents, the praise, etc. And they become really offended and they can start screaming and shouting and telling them off and say, I am good. I'm going to show you. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. This is, and this is really extreme, but in general, among the people today, this is a very bad problem. And that's what the elders are saying. I'm not saying it. This is one of the greatest elders of, our sen- of the last century. And he said, praising of children is the biggest disaster that you can do for it, to that, to, like that. And you might say, well, what do you do if you don't praise? He, we'll come to that when we do the next talks. We will see how to bring up children because he speaks a lot about how to bring up children. Now, you can either listen to the Women's Weekly on how to bring up children. There's other books that, are, that exist of how to bring up children. There's a lot of psychologists now of how to bring up children. And some stuff that they say is good. But if you've never read orthodox books, how do you know what's good and what's not good? How would you know? A lot of you don't read spiritual books, so you wouldn't know. So if a psychologist said that when you do this, this and this, you should discipline your children like this or whatever, and you listen to them, at the end you might find out that that theory gets thrown out in 10 years' time. Like psychology is always changing. It's not a specific science. Like water is H2O. Two hydrogen atoms, one oxygen atom. Makes a molecule. In maths, the same thing. 2x plus 3x is 5x. That's it. Finish. We're not going to come up in 50 years' time or 100 years' time and say 2x and 3x doesn't equal 5x. It equals uh, 5xx or something. So, which is really 5x squared. But that's, that's um, not how it works. But in psychology, the theory of before is not the theory of today. And today's theory might be changed in the future. So when you read those books, there's some good things in those books. I've, I've, I've looked at those, some of those books. They've got some very good things. But don't just use that as your source. You need to read orthodox material to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong. Because you don't want to bring up your child in that way and later on find out that your child's sick. Like in the old days, in the 60s, a lot of those hippie people brought up their children with free love. And they thought that exposing their children to sex at an early age and all these things and whatever, and it's going to make children that are free, free of the repression. Because they used to say in those days, oh, the church is repressive. The church isn't free. And it teaches that sex is bad and all these things, which it doesn't. Maybe Protestants do. In the past, they used to say all these things. Orthodoxy, sex is not considered as bad within marriage. But the Protestants, a lot of them in the older times, a lot of them, they used to believe that it was even disgusting even in marriage. So they had very, very warped views. So these hippies reacted to that. And they made up what's called the flower power days and free and sex and things like that. And a lot of the children that were brought up in those times are very sick now. Didn't work. Didn't last for long either. Only lasted in San Francisco for a few years. It failed. Only in the Orthodox Church we do not have changing theories. What was taught is taught. 
Sometimes we have to adapt to new situations. Like, for example, in the ancient church, they didn't mention television because television didn't exist. So they have to adapt to that. We, the, the church has to develop, using God's enlightenment, to teach about those things. But we don't have a teaching of the church, which was two, 300 years ago, and then come and go, oh, we were wrong then. Now it's like this. Like in the Catholic church. You know, they say uh, uh, divorce is not allowed, but we can do annulments. Contraception is not allowed, and now they're being pressured. How they're going to get out of that? Africa, AIDS, they're saying, you know, people are saying the church is behind, it doesn't allow for condoms, etc. So they're going to slowly say they might change. What are they going to say? Oh, we're wrong. But in the Orthodox Church, we don't say anything which is wrong. See, in the Catholic Church, they used to say you fast Wednesdays and Fridays and this and this and this. But now they don't fast. In the Orthodox Church, we say, this is the teaching of the Church. We fast Wednesdays, Fridays, Lent, etc., etc., etc. This is the teaching. This is the standard. If you can't do it, then you ask God for forgiveness, humble yourself, but we don't bring the standard down like they did in the Catholic Church. We don't push down and say, okay, you can't do it, poor things. Let's bring down the standard there, 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 until there's no standard. In the Orthodox Church, the church teaches that people should be free and have children, for example. And it doesn't look well at contraception. However, if someone is weak, it's up to the spiritual father to look at that matter. And the person should repent and say, I'm not strong enough, I wish that I can have more faith, but I don't have that faith to be able to allow myself to have as many children as God gives. But we don't bring down the standard. They never praised me. Oh, yes, we said all that, didn't we? My elders urged me. Yeah, so his elders told him to read service books, lives of saints. They gave me nothing else in the form of counsel and guidance that I love. They gave me nothing else in the form of counsel and guidance. In other words, they didn't give him they didn't sit down and give him spiritual guidance. They said, this is what you do, just do that, and that's it. And from that, you'll learn spiritual life. Not much this uh, guidance, etc. Why? Today, because a lot of people are in fantasy and they read spiritual books, they read about the elders and the guidance that they used to give, etc. So when they go to a monastery, or when they even come to a priest, they want to sit down and they want the priest, as if he's in light, to be shining, and to give out all this information and as if it's something in their minds that they've conjured up of how a priest is or how an elder is or how an abbess is or how an abbot is, etc. And that's why good spiritual fathers and good abbesses and good abbots of monasteries, etc., they know that. They're not going to sit down and do too much. They say, okay, here you are. You've come to the monastery to become a monk or a nun. This is your job. You do that, that and that. And that's it. Do that for a while. If they're not going to do that, if they can't even follow that instruction, then what's the point in giving them um, further guidance when they can't even do the, the, um, the practical? And that's why these elders didn't give you much guidance in that sense. When necessary, they said a few things, as we'll see later on, but not much. And he says, they gave me nothing in the form of counsel and guidance. I was flying. He said he was actually 
felt spiritually um, elevated. I lived in paradise. I didn't get sick from excessive work, but rather from egotism, which we're going to see that in a minute. So, I lived in paradise and I didn't get sick from excessive work. He really worked hard. His father came up to me lately and he said he's got some young kids. They won't do work. They won't do any work. Even if they see the mother sick, they've got no real feeling to help. And he said, what should I do? And I said to him, that's your fault because you should have worked on them when they were younger, not come now when they're older. You should have worked on them when they were younger. You teach children from young to be responsible. I said, you have to repent for the mistake you made and then ask for God's mercy to help us the situation. I'm not going to sit down and work out ways for him to work out. You know, he's tried to use physical force. He's tried to talk to them. He's tried to shout. He's tried this. He's tried that. Tried to bribe. Tried to deprive them of their going out and things like that. Nothing works. They're just logs. Every time we go to something good, whatever it is, whether we're coming close to Christ, whether we're coming, we start to do prayers, whether we start going to church, whether we start going to confession, whether we start reading spiritual books, whether we, we want to become a monk or a nun, whatever. Anytime we're doing something good, the devil also will fight because he doesn't like us to come close to holy things. Why? Because he doesn't want us to be saved. Now, some will say saved. What's that? For only Protestants say saved. What's this saved? You know, it's funny that in the Orthodox Church, because things are done in a different language, in the Slavonic or Greek or whatever, so a lot of times people don't understand, especially the ones that are born in, say, here in Australia or America, or whatever, they don't understand a lot of things. They miss a lot of, um, a, little, a lot of good things. And it's for this reason that a lot of young people who have spiritual thirst leave the Orthodox Church and go to other churches because there's no, a lot of times, there's a lack of English. My example, I was, as I said, I wasn't brought up in the church. When I started becoming interested in spiritual things and church things, I didn't go to an Orthodox church because in those days, a lot of the Greek priests didn't speak much English, from what I remember. So I started going to Catholic churches. I started to speak to them. Also went to um, some Protestant churches too because they spoke English as well. But through God's providence, the way it was all worked out, that I found out that there was one priest who spoke English, really good English. And I went to him, Greek priest, and he had all these books in English, like, like I've got available for you up there. And I went there and I bought all these books and I started to read and I said, oh, then I understood. So I wasn't forced into the Orthodox Church. Everyone's got different ways. But, thanks God I wasn't lost. But a lot of people are lost because of this lack of English which is needed for people who are not comfortable speaking in another language. I do remember once my, my mother actually brought over a priest and he couldn't speak English 
and he sat there and he's speaking to me in Greek. And in those days, my Greek, not, not, not that good now, but in those days it was very bad. And really, I didn't know what he was talking about. And um, I felt quite frustrated with that. Do not force people to learn something in a language that they're not comfortable with. If people think in English, if people dream in English, if people feel in English, then therefore they should also practice their spiritual life as much as possible in English. I still used to go to other services, but at the Greek services, Russian services, even I didn't understand, that was okay because at least I began to have some understanding of orthodoxy in my language. So that doesn't mean that we don't go to church at all. Some of my best times were at the Russian convent up here at Kentland, which we have, and they used to do all the services in the Russian in the old days. They were the best services that I ever went to in my whole life. But at least I had someone to speak to in English, like I had the priest, I had books, and that helped me to understand what is the liturgy, what's going on, what's the priest saying, kind of, you know, things like that. Elder Porfirios said, I was very happy and enthusiastic about my life there. In the beginning, however, I went through a period of temptation. I started to think about my parents. I felt sore, I felt like pain for them. I was pained that they didn't know where I was. I thought also about my cousin of my own age. I developed a desire to go to my village for a little and to bring my cousin to the holy mountain so that he too could experience the wonderful life. I felt that I had an obligation to bring him to Christ. I didn't say anything, however, to my elder, and so I started to lose my appetite for food. Again, my face grew white and I became melancholy. So as I mentioned, all of a sudden he started to have thoughts about his cousin. And in the spiritual life, a lot of times the devil brings us things that before weren't important, all of a sudden they're important. So he's there on the mountain, on the holy mountain, leading a beautiful spiritual life, and suddenly he remembers his cousin. Now, on the outside, that looks all right. Look at that. He's thinking about his cousin. He wants to go back to the village to make his cousin to become more religious and bring him to the holy mountain, to Mount Athos. That looks good. He was thinking about his parents. That looks good. But not everything that looks good is necessarily good. In the spiritual life, the demons have a way of making something look fantastic, something to look from God, but it's not from God. It's a trick. But the demons aren't going to appear to the evangelist and say to him, deny God or say other things, which is obvious, which then he would run to his elders. St. Paul says that the demons disguise themselves as an angel of light. In other words, the demons can even appear as an angel. And they can appear in your thoughts and have good thoughts that appear angelic. They appear spiritual. But they're not. And how are we to know? How's he to know? He's only a young boy. How are we to know, as Orthodox Christians, what's right and what's wrong? The demon that says that the devil has 
nearly 8,000 years of experience, if I remember seven, eight, I can't, can't remember now, of experience of, of um, tricking people. How many years have we been living? Oh, I'm 50, 50, some of you are 70, whatever, 60, 20, 10. How do we know what's, what's he doing? I told, this is, and this is the secret, my elder noticed all this. One day he called me over and said to me with concern, what's wrong, my boy, what's the matter with you? I told him everything, and that was the end of it. I was free. The temptation passed, my appetite returned, and joy flooded my heart. This is the basics of spiritual life. Don't keep things in you. When you have thoughts or problems, it's always good to express them to your spiritual father, as long as he understands, because not all, not all priests can understand the spiritual life. I have to say that. I know it sounds judgmental, but I've got to say the truth. Find a priest who is virtuous, a priest who is struggling, a priest who cares for your soul and submit and listen and open up. The demons don't like us when we open our thoughts because it's like our minds darkened at the time and it's like someone's put a torch into our head and all of a sudden, oh, look what I can see. And that's what happens when you express your thoughts to, your, to the spiritual father. You're, a lot of times you, you can become free. And that's why the demons try their best to make us hate our spiritual fathers or if we're at a monastery to hate our abbess or to hate our abbot or to hate whatever there's a big temptation which occurs and the biggest temptation is don't say anything don't open up of course that comes when a person starts to get a bit serious and by serious, I don't mean if you're going to the discos or you're doing other things that are uh, worldly, etc. I don't think they're going to take much time to bring all these temptations and waste their time when they've already got you in where they want. I'm talking about people who actually start to repent and start to change their life and start to really seek God and want salvation. Them, yes, he'll take time. Others, not really. I continued in, in obedience to my elders my face became like light. I grew more handsome and good-looking. Now, this is, this is quite uh, interesting that he actually speaks about himself and says, I grew handsome and good-looking. This is something that in the spiritual life is not done because it's a form of pride. And when I read this, I go, okay, what's happening here? Why is he speaking like that when we know that the, a lot of holy fathers would never speak like that? And let's, let's have a look. Although I had been thin and scrawny to begin with, when he, when, before he came to the Holy Mountain, he was a very skinny child, I later became quite handsome. My face became angelic. How did I see it? He went, I went to see my elder one day, and the, and the sun was on the window, and I saw my reflection. And when I saw my face, I said to myself, goodness, how the grace of God has changed me. To begin with, I thought about my parents and thought of them tormented me. Later, I didn't think about them at all. I remembered them only in my prayer for the Lord to save them. At first, I longed for them. Later, my longing was for my elders. 
I commemorated my parents, I prayed for them, but in different way, only with the love of Christ. In other words, it wasn't an emotional love, but a love in Christ which is different to come to that. I, come, I, uh, I started to fast more and to make greater ascetic effort, and I was filled with even greater mania, one can say, and enthusiasm. I longed to be in church, he loved being in the church, continually and wanted to do whatever his elders told him so that I could please them. There you see is the change, the translation work by the grace of God. I'll give you something about that, something quite uh, interesting. Some of you one day might go to Manathos, and I hope you do. Very, very wonderful, wonderful, uplifting experience. It is true what he's saying there. When, someone, when people go to Manathos, there's no TV. There's no access to internet. Well, they might have it, but because you're in the you're, you're in the monasteries, you're going to church services continually. No, no women. Women aren't are not allowed on Manathos. And you're venerating special uh, icons, and you're going to different monasteries, and people praying for you because they meet you and they say, "What's your name?" They pray for you. They're going to services. A lot of people confess, many for the first time when they go to Manathos. And sometimes people, after one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks of being on the holy mountain, come off. It's happened, because I, I know that. So we come off, get on the boat, get off, and all of a sudden we're back into the, into the world. And suddenly there's music blaring, there's people everywhere, um, worldliness, Swearing, madness, and the, and it's actually true that it's like you're just in another world after being on Mount Athos for so long. Also, it is true that those who go on Mount Athos with a good heart, good disposition, looking for their salvation, etc., they do come off changed. I remember one monastery I was at. Some young people came. Some were twenty. 17, 20, 21, 25, whatever, they came to this monastery that was in the world. And, they, and the, one of the spiritual fathers saw the young men and said, you must have just come off Mount Athos. Your face is completely transformed, like they looked completely different. And they said, yes, we just got off today. So that is true, but he was there for years. So when someone begins to go into the spiritual life, changes do occur within the person, but also in appearance-wise. See, women, the poor things, they think that they're going to look beautiful with their makeup and their dyes. And, you know, Elder Pacers actually said that he's surprised a lot of those women don't die from poison because a lot of the stuff that they put on them is really poisonous. And, um, and they think that that gives them beauty. But remember what I told you before, in the first few centuries of the church, pagan women, women that used to believe in idols and things like that, pagan women who used perfumes and makeup and they were, you know, they really dressed up, were jealous of Christian women because the women, Christian women had a beauty, which was a spiritual beauty which radiated from them, which they couldn't get. And if you look at 
you know, even the most beautiful of um, movie stars, to me, they're still dry as. Because it's only external. So, why did he actually speak like that about himself? I think that his, his humility was so great, he was, so, like I said about that example of my mother with the cousin, that they saw the light. They didn't later on say, we're special, we're this, very simple. And he was very simple. Very humble, simple, young boy. Okay, we're going to have our break now. There's more to go. I actually believe, as I was doing putting this together, I thought to myself, I'm not going to try and put this into one talk. It's just too great. I want to go through it. I think it's going to take two talks, actually. Next month, I want to continue on. But we'll, have a, we'll continue on after the break. And, um, but I actually think we're going to do two talks on this because... It's really good to see how a saint, how the saint develops, and how one becomes a saint. And this, he's he's great because he actually, even though he was a monk, a lot of you aren't monks. That, that's okay, nuns, etc. But that's not important. He actually had a lot to say to people who lived in the world, to married people, to young people, and we're going to do that later on in the other talks where we go through his teachings and also go through people who met him, who went and met him, and they talked about all their problems and things that they had, and I think it's really, this is a wonderful um, saint. So I'm not trying to do it so that I can make you become a, you know, that monasticism, things like, it's not really. I'm giving you an, a build-up, and you will see that there will be great benefit. Okay, so are we ready? When someone begins to enter into the spiritual life, there is always something that we should be careful of, and that is to have what's called excessive zeal. That means wanting to do things when it might not be good for us. Like, for example, someone comes into the church and they say, oh, I'm going to do a lot of fasting, or I'm going to do very big prayers, or I'm going to do, um, you know, like excessive things. Sometimes those things can be dangerous. Even though, as I said, on the external it looks good, but it may not be good for us. And that's the good thing about the Orthodox Church. We have a lot of teachings on deception, prelest, in other words, Polanyi Greek, and we owe that to our monastic tradition. Because of orthodox monasticism, because they, the monks and the nuns, led very deep spiritual lives, they actually outlined for us many of these deceptions and wrong attitudes in the spiritual life. In the Protestant church, they don't have that. They've lost a lot of the tradition that we still have on spiritual life and for that reason there is a, they go astray a lot where they might believe that something is for God but it might be the devil 
Now, someone might say, well, why would the devil make someone do a lot of fasting? Or why would the devil make someone read the Bible and learn it off by heart? Well, let's see all that now. Here's an example of where the elder himself says about disobedience. My, my elders would often be away working all day and would leave me alone in the hermitage. So they had business to do, and they used to live at that little hermitage by himself. And I would busy myself with handicraft. Those monks up there, he was only a novice, he wasn't a monk yet, but those monks, they had to have ways of living. So they would make little wood carvings of crosses, prosperous seals, some of them do icons, some of them make incense, and this is the way that they make some money to be able to live. My handicraft was wood carving. They still hadn't shown me everything about the craft. They were afraid I might leave. What the elders trying to say here is that the, his elders would not teach him completely how to finish the job of the handicraft because they were scared that if he learns how to do it, then he will get temptations to leave because then he can support himself. And uh, this is a problem that comes, as I said, the demons will use anything to make a person leave something which is benefiting them. So if he's receiving benefit from being with the elders here, as a young boy he was receiving benefit, then the demons will make up some type of thing and say, you can do this, you can go here, you can go and become a preacher, or you can do all these things. You can make handicraft, you can live your own life, and you can give money to the poor. Anything and everything will be made up to get the person away. For example, someone's married, then they'll come along and say, oh, you would have been better off as a monk or a nun or whatever. Then, and if they're monks or nuns, then they said, you would have been married to, to be married, you would have had children. So whatever you are doing... That you'll always have temptations to do something opposite just to get you away from what you're doing in your life of what your direction is. If you're married, you're married. If you're a monastic, you're a monastic. If whatever, whatever. You know, that's, that's how it is. So in his case, uh, he did have temptations. He used to often think, I'm going to go and live on my own up in the mountain or I'm going to go in the world and become a preacher or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. He went through those temptations. So one day I took a fine piece of white wood. He saw some birds, uh, he saw a bird pecking away at a grape, and he took a, a piece of white wood, traced out a design on it, and he carved a very fine black bird with its wings stretched out, pecking at the grape. It was actually quite good. They're very gifted, those monks. They, got, you know, they know how to, how to do these wood carvings. It was very fine. I had finished it all with sandpaper. When my elders returned... I went to greet them with a bow. I took my carbon with me and I showed it to Father Ioannikios and said, look what I've done. And as soon as he saw it, he started to become angry. Who told you to make that? Did you ask anyone? He grabbed it and threw it on the floor, smashing it to pieces. Now, in our mind, that seems ridiculous. In our mind, that seems demonic one can say in our mind you say oh well, you know the young boy he was doing something to please you and in what did you do you threw it down and you smashed it that's our mind but our mind also tells us that we should do things in this world with our children that aren't beneficial 
Years ago, I used to say to parents, be careful, don't, for example, encourage the young girls, young, young girls, even seven, eight years old, to be preoccupied with their looks because they will become sick. And they would look at me and say, ugh, monk, what do you know? And um, you wouldn't care because half of your face is covered with hair anyway. And that we, you know, we're in the world and you're a monk and you understand and all this yap, yap, yap. And they think that we are backward. But now, years later, what do we see continually on these current affairs and these um, 60 Minutes and all these Today Tonight shows and all that? Continually, the epidemic of young girls who are anorexic, young girls who are full of anxiety, young girls who are preoccupied with their looks, young girls who are sick. Now, I'm not trying to say I'm a prophet. What I'm trying to say is that as a monastic, we can see where something leads. People of the world don't see that. And there's other examples too of things that the monastic life tells us be careful of because they are experienced. Our saints who wrote the books had a lot of experience and knew where things can lead. Oh, it's not bad for a young boy to be interested in some inappropriate literature. They're growing up. It's normal, some dopey fathers would say. It's normal. It means he's a man. Well, look at the world now. With the internet pornography, look at the divorces. Look at the disaster which has occurred right through the world, which started off as that little thing and has now led to where it's led to now. So, for these elders, for these holy elders to react in that way, they reacted for a reason. And the reason why they reacted is because in the monastic life, something which is done without a blessing, Blagoslav, I think you say in Serbian, without a blessing, without getting permission, leads to disaster, leads to spiritual catastrophe. It leads to deception. A lot of us don't understand that anymore because we're living in an age of disobedience. Everyone's disobedient. It's a way of life now. Children are disobedient. They're taught that at schools. Don't listen to parents. Don't listen to this. Don't listen to government. Hide. Do this. Do that. When, they, when the children see their parents disobedient to the law, then the children are going to become disobedient. If the children see the parents not, not um, respecting the priest, well, they're not going to respect the priest. If the children aren't they're going to see their parents robbing Social Security, whatever they call now, Centrelink, then they're going to think, well, it's all right to rob, it's all right to steal, it's all right to do false insurance claims, it's all right, this, 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 and all that. 
and that's what happens today. So that's why a lot of people say, oh, this is, what a horrible man. He smashed such a beautiful piece of work which could have been sold. He, then he said, go at once and tell the elder, the brother said, go and tell the other elder, Pandalimon. He said, I was mortified and asked his forgiveness. Without realising it, I had upset them. Why do you do things without asking, said the elder. Go at once to the elder and show him the pieces and make confession. Go and confess. I went straight away to the elder and showed him the pieces and he said to me, you shouldn't have done that, my boy. Nothing gets done without a blessing. The way you can easily be led astray and lose the grace of God. That's the secret. Once you learn to do things on your own, then the devil can lead you astray. Whenever you ask for permission, then it's blessed and you're protected. Again, in today's world, people would see that as being restrictive. People would say, why should I listen to someone else? And why should I do what someone else tells me? Woman says, why should I have to listen to my husband? Children, why should I have to listen to my parents? Let's look at the result of that. People believe that the church is restrictive and that you have to be free. We said this before. So people today are free. What's the result? Alcoholism. Gamblers. Drug addicts. Sexaholics. How many people today have sexual problems that they can't stop? One of them is the internet and other things. Food, where people can't stop eating. A lot of people say, why should I listen to the church and fast? I'll eat when I want. That's okay, eat when you want. And the result is that today we have so many diets. There's the Zone diet, and then there's the Atkins diet, and then there's this and there's that. There's so many diets Every time you see on television continually nothing, nothing else but a new diet. First it's low fat, then high fat. And low carbohydrate, this, and this, and that, and that, and that, and that. You don't even know where to keep up. Back in my days, you only were allowed to eat two eggs a day. Now they're saying, no, that's good cholesterol. You can add it. It's bad cholesterol and there's good cholesterol and this and that. And there's bad sugar and good sugars. And you just go crazy and you feel like ripping your hair out because you don't know what's going on. And people are doing exercise, and people go to Jenny Craig, and then people go to Shaw Slim. I had a guy once, he was quite large, and he went to Shaw Slim. He goes, oh, it's fantastic, it's fantastic, I'm going to lose weight. So he took me for one day, we are going out, to take me somewhere to a doctor, and he, he goes, um, and he said, um, I have to have my lunch now. I go, okay, and he opened up a little plastic container with seeds. I said, what is your bird here, is it? Are you going to feed your bird? Where is it? It's in your pocket. What's, what's going on? He goes, no, it's mine. I'm going to, so he's going to peck away at some seeds. <laughs> anyway, so I said, I don't think that's going to work, that diet, because it's not normal. Human beings don't just peck on seeds all day because Jenny Craig said it or something. So anyway, and at the end, 
Do you lose weight? No. It became bigger because it makes you want to eat more. Obviously, after, after three months of eating birdseed, I'm sure he'd be, he would have been at McDonald's every day. So this is all what happens when we want our freedom. We want to live in freedom and instead we become slaves. But the elder here, the young Evangelos, what did he do? He lived in obedience, did what his elders said, and he was free. While we do what we want and we are slaves to our passions. And that's why they smashed it and that's why they made a big deal. This is, we don't hear these things. I went straight away to the elder and showed him the pieces and he said to me, you shouldn't have done that, my boy. Nothing is done without a blessing. That way you can easily be led astray and lose the grace of God. I made a bow of penitence and asked his forgiveness with simplicity and without passion. The reproach didn't bother me. So in other words, even though he was told off, it didn't bother him. He was spiritually progressed. On the contrary, I thought my elders should have been harsher. They should have punished me. While we go to a priest which doesn't punish. Because we're scared. We, we like to go to somewhere where they're more, uh, when they're not as strict. So we can be more free. The same thing happens in marriage. Hiding. Hiding, hiding um, husbands hiding from their wives. Wives hiding from their husbands things. All those things begin to, it's not good. You don't have to just run and speak to your spiritual father. There's also being honest in the marriage itself. And doing things, speaking together. As I said, children have gone so far away from obedience that actually a lot of people, maybe some people can remember when they were younger in the villages or something, they remember that the kids would do what they were told. What were they, zombies? They weren't, they weren't sick children. But today, with so much freedom, there's so much sickness. On another occasion, however, I was deliberately disobedient. There was an accident. Now, he did something deliberately. One day, before the elders left for work, my spiritual father said, do you see that book on the shelf? Don't touch it. It's not for you. You're too young. Later, when you've shown improvement, when you're more humble, then you'll read it. Now, I like that part there where it says, later when you're more humble, not when you're more educated, not when you can read better, but when you're more humble. That determines what books we read. Education to some level, if a person can't read probably, but in general, the most important thing is how much humility someone has. Do they have pride? You keep them away from certain books. Simple. They've got humility, then they can progress and read deeper books. Personally for me, if someone's proud, I basically, sometimes I even tell them to read nothing. Because whatever they read, they just, their minds go into madness. That's, that was law for me, he said. The elders said it, I'm not, so I didn't even glance at it. But one day when the elders had left, I was overtaken by curiosity. I went over and looked up. It was high up. I was small and couldn't reach it. 
um, I turned the matter over, over in my mind and I said to myself, at least let me see what it's about. So he was tempted. So I pulled across the stool, climbed up, reached up and brought it down. What a pity. The letters were all jumbled. They were written, they were written in a special way that he couldn't read it. And it was a very big book, very heavy book. And he said, oh, I can't read it. And he placed it back on the shelf. But after this, I felt depressed, troubled and sad. I could neither work nor pray. Now, this is important too. Some people actually say, see, the church makes people depressed because it makes them feel guilty. By having laws, don't do this, don't do that, then it makes us feel guilty and it makes us feel sick. Even if we were to take, even if we have someone, we get children and bring them up without God's law. God's law is still in the person's heart. And when that person transgresses God's law, when they do something that's wrong, then they still feel guilty because it's in the heart. And that's why communism and Lenin and all them, they couldn't get it out of the heart. They tried to eradicate the teachings of the church from the schools and from society in Russia, but they couldn't eradicate it from the heart because everyone is created in God's image and therefore everyone has God's law in them. That's the way God made us. So that's silly to actually believe that the church makes people guilty. Even atheists, even people who are maybe even naturalists or whatever they are, people who don't even believe in God, what's the main thing that they, that they talk about when they've got young children? Obedience, the children don't listen. So they know that there's a problem. The psychiatrists who don't believe in God, a lot of them, they don't, they don't take God into consideration when they write their books. What they're starting to notice is that self-will is actually counterproductive. It's not good. Starting to see that now. So, in this case, the young Evangelos, he felt depressed, troubled and sad. Why? Because he did something wrong. Now I'm going to say something which many of you might not understand. doesn't matter. A lot of depression that exists today, apart from depression being because of physical reasons, you know, some people can be depressed because of low irons or sugar problems, etc. But, you know, there's, there's physical reasons for it too. But in general, depression comes from disobeying God's law. That's depression. And depression is given by God as a way to bring the person to repentance. One of the, an eldress, Agatha, I think if I remember right, in the some of you know catacomb saints. Anyway, she actually uh, dealt a lot with people who were depressed, and she says it's God's way of helping people to come to repentance. How many people I know that were chronically depressed and through their depression, they actually found God? People who said, I had everything. 
I had money, I had this, I had that, I had, 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 had everything, but I wasn't happy. I had children, I had a wife, or I had a husband, or I had whatever, good job, but I wasn't happy. And they think it's a disaster. They go, oh, what a disaster, what a disaster. It's not a disaster, it's a way that God is using to bring that person to him. In a way, it's a disguised blessing. Even though one can say, how can depression be a disguised blessing? It can be a blessing. I don't like speaking about myself, but I will say one thing, that I came to the church through that very way. So therefore, I can say from experience that if God didn't give me that, I wouldn't be here today. I might even have been. I might even be dead. On other occasions, when my elders were away, I would go to church. I would sing hymns. I would feel very good. But this time, because he sinned, he couldn't even pray. He says here. Uh, this time, however, after my disobedience, I didn't go to church. I went and sat on a wall looking at the sea, like depressed people do. I sat and looked at the sea. I didn't eat, want even to repeat the Lord Jesus Christ, the prayer. You know, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me on the prayer rope. You see the state I was in. Great depression. So that was that. I didn't go to church. I didn't do the Jesus prayer. Melancholy had taken hold of me. And that is a fact. I remember once this woman... She, she was very depressed, very, very, very depressed. And um, she went to a doctor, and the doctor said, oh, you're, you're um, chronically depressed. And then I spoke to her a little bit, and then we discovered that she had a fight with her husband. She was rude. She was disobedient. She was um, horrible, in other words. She sinned, because that's, that's a sin. And uh, as soon as she said sorry to the husband, as soon as she repented for what she did in her behaviour, well, she wasn't chronically depressed anymore. As evening fell, the elders arrived back. What was I to do, poor wretch that I am? I said to myself that I would tell them, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. See, shame, the demons, don't confess, don't say this, don't say that. We read Vespers and we read Compline, I said nothing. I went up to my room, I didn't do my prostrations, I couldn't do my prayer rule, I couldn't read the Psalms, I couldn't do prayer rope. I lay down and contemplated what I'd be like when I died lying in my coffin. So he brought death as a way to help him repent. Needless to say, I was miserable. Today, a lot of young children, New South Wales is actually one of the worst for depression and suicide, teenage suicide. Why? No God. It's a bit hard to give someone God if they've been put in front of the TV from a couple of months old and they've been brainwashed with stupidities on the television and just listening to all types of music. And many of our young kids now, even young, young primary school, have got access to internet and watching really coarse things that people in our days would never have imagined, what's a young child going to do? Hmm? Be joyful and be bright. 
after seeing those things on TV. How many people have come to me and I've spoke, spoken to them and they open up and they say what they've seen and they're actually so disturbed. It's not like an adult. It's still bad for an adult. But for a young child to watch those things, it is really bad. And those poor kids are disturbed. That's no way they can handle those type of concepts. But parents aren't monitoring. Parents have, a lot of parents, not all of them, but a lot of parents are selfish. They lead selfish lives. They concentrate on themselves. A lot of women work. Do I, am I against that? It doesn't matter what I'm against. What I'm saying is that there's no one home. When children come home, there's no one home to supervise them. Next morning, the bell rang. We went down to the church and I read. We finished matins. We left the church to go to the trapeza, which is the, where they eat. I couldn't stand it any longer. I tugged a little at my elder's um, sleeve like and, said, and, and I said to him, I want to see you for a minute. I want to see you for a minute, elder. At once he turned back and we went into the church again and I told him. I'm very troubled, I said. I've been disobedient. You told me not to touch the book and I had a look at it and since then I haven't been at peace. No Lord Jesus Christ, no prayer, no psalms, no prostrations. I can't do anything, he said to his elder. And the elder said, didn't I tell you, my boy, why did you do it? Forgive me, elder, temptation got the better of me and I'm very sorry, forgive me. And with your prayers, I'll be careful in the future and I won't be disobedient. He read a prayer of forgiveness and, you, and do you know, all my tortured thoughts disappeared. That was, that was one good thing. And as soon as I confessed to the elder, glory to God, I got over everything immediately. I'm a, I'm a human. We're all human beings. You people sin. I sin. Everyone sins. You people need to go and fix yourselves up with God through the confession of a priest. I have to also fix myself up when I do something wrong. So therefore, I'm not just speaking theory. I had some trouble the other, the other day, and, I, and that's true. There was like a, like a heaviness on me. Like something wasn't right. Something that I did that wasn't right. Go to the spiritual father, said, said it, gone. God dissolved it, finished. And then I felt better. So what I'm saying to you is not just I'm talking down at you and go, you people are bad, you people are sinful. You Everyone does bad. But we have to unburden ourselves, but never be forced. I hate when parents come to me and say, oh, can you... Confess the child. Well, can you tell my boy to confess? How old is he? Oh, 23. Well, I think he's old enough to make his own decision. No, no, you've got to go. No, don't make people confess. Confession is when someone feels guilty and they feel the need to want to go and unburden themselves to reconcile with God. That's it. It's got to be free. You don't want it, you don't do it. No one forces anyone. Christ said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven you. Protestants believe, now that means something else, whatever. Protestants, doesn't matter what they believe. In the Orthodox Church, we know we've kept the tradition for 2,000 years. Only the priests have 
the power to forgive sins. And as I said to you before, the priests, when they do something wrong, go to someone else. That's good. Good to find a priest which is a little bit sinful. Why? What do I mean by that? Because he will have more understanding when you come to him. If the priest is struggling, because when a, we're like soldiers, all of us, Christian soldiers. We're fighting the, with sin, we fight with the devil, we fall. Then we get up again, then we fall. There's two, like, and today we have soldiers that have been overseas, they're more humble. They don't sit there and go, and we were there, and we bang, bang, and boom, boom, and threw grenades. They're very humble because they actually were hit. A lot of them were shot. A lot of them were scared. They went through a lot. Then you've got the others who stay at home and they're soldiers on the computer. And, and they do, and they play on the computer games. Oh, I killed that person. And they're in the fantasy and they actually believe that if they went to some war zone that they would actually be like um, some special GI person or whatever you call those guys, Marines or something. And they're in fantasy. It's the same in spiritual life. There's people that are in fantasy and there's people who are who have struggled and have been knocked down and have fallen to sins, got up, have experienced things, have gone through many temptations, go find those priests. Those priests are good because they'll understand you. If you've got someone who's deceived, someone who thinks that he's good and praises himself that he's good, then as soon as you open your mouth and say, I've done this, this and this, then you won't feel very consoled because you feel that the person's judging you. Priests that are struggling won't judge. They actually feel more close to you. Actually, they feel more love towards you because you are the same as them. Nowadays, I hear some monks saying, make sure the elder doesn't hear about it. That's true. I went to a monastery years ago when I thought I was going to stay at that monastery. I didn't end up staying there, but I remember some monks telling me, um, you don't tell the elder everything. You know, you've got to keep secrets. And I was quite shocked because I had read differently and I knew differently. But those monks, they weren't really appropriate. No, oh, no, you don't tell you don't tell your spiritual father everything. You hide them. Can you believe it? For us, on the contrary, the elder pervaded our whole being into our heart. I love the elders very much, though at the time all novices in those days, when he lived on Mount Athos, all the novices loved their spiritual fathers and were obedient. But today, because we live in an age of disobedience. That's why a lot of people can't become monastics. That's why even Abbess Maria, when we have a little conversation now again, she actually says that you, it's very hard for people to become nuns or become, well, in her case, nuns, because she's got a, a woman's monastery, um, or monks, because the children of today, as they grow up, the youth, they, don't, they haven't got any sense of obedience. I spoke to an abbess in Greece. This is a few years ago. And she said, oh, I haven't been able to find anyone below, in those days, uh, below 30. And that was around 15 years ago. So now we might even say below 40 because a lot of those people who are now 40 or something have grown up in an age of just self-will. And it just doesn't, it doesn't mix with monastic life. And point of actual fact, it doesn't mix with spiritual life at all. 
If you did anything contrary to that, any disobedience, you couldn't receive communion. That's how it was in those days. And in some monasteries, that's how it still is. And that's the way it is. We have to teach our children discipline. That doesn't mean to whip them. It doesn't mean to restrict them. It means to, with prayer and with love, but with understanding. If you allow your child to be completely free to do whatever it wants, when it wants, it's going to turn out to be a beast and worthless. Okay, that's that one. Then we come to, so he embraced, the young evangelist embraced the monastic life with great zeal. He happily and continuously struggled hard in the ascetical life. Let's see what he did. For example, he would walk barefoot among the rocky and snowy paths of the holy mountain. So along rocks that were full of snow or sharp, he would walk along there without any shoes. He slept very little and then with only one blanket on the floor of the hut, even keeping the window open when it was snowing. During the night, he would make many prostrations, you know, when they fall up, down, up, down, when they do those prostrations, stripping himself to the waist so that the sleep would not overcome him. He worked, wood carving, cutting down trees, gathering snails, or carrying sacks of earth on his back for long distances so that a garden could be created. He used to say that in those years, he was forever on the move, constantly busy. So when you take a person that's been brought up in this society to a monastery, because some people say, oh, monasteries are for bludgers. Well, you'll go to some monasteries and see and see how much um, bludgers they are. There's services, there's work, there's this, there's that. Basically, you've got no time. But that's healthy. He did a lot of work. Now... People would read that and say, oh, well, I'm going to do that now. When it's really cold, I'm going to leave my window open. Or I'm going to do that. These, these people were humble. These people were spiritual and these people were under obedience. If something wasn't right, the elder would say, be careful of that. That's not right. Don't do that. You know, we don't just do things on our own. Just do things normally. Just do the church, the church things normal. Don't do anything extraordinary. Some people want to do something special to make out that they're special and become proud. And someone says, I'm going to fast on Monday as well because the monastics do. You know, just do simple prayers. People say, oh, I prayed all night. Which can be good if you're under guidance and if you're not falling into, de into deception. The obstinate elders just say, do what's normal. When you go to church, if you are, say, communing often, but no one else is communing, it's good that you're communing often. However, if you're the only one communing, then that can make the devil come along and say, see, you are special because you're the only one that's communing. So what do you do then? Well, what's better, to fall into deception and think you're great or commune less, if that's what the way the church is? And commune as often as you can when it's feast days, etc. You know, it depends. Depends on the church. Depends on your parish. Of course it's good to commune often. But what's the point in communing often if you're going to fall in deception and lose yourself? However, the most important aspect of the life of this particular young man, the future of the Porfirios, was not his physical, what we call podvig. His, uh, well, podvig can be spiritual, but the physical, you know, sleeping on the ground, 
and being cold and all these things. That wasn't the most important thing. But rather his obedience to his elders. That's the most important thing. In the Orthodox Church, the most important thing is obedience. And obedience doesn't mean just to the priest. As I said, women can be obedient to their husbands. Husbands can be obedient sometimes to their wives as well, when, meaning that, you know, listen, be, be humble. Children to be obedient. Children to be obedient at school. To be obedient to the law. To be obedient to uh, others, whatever, in, at your job. Some people have told me that some bosses, they say, I can't even keep young people today. I go, why? He goes, no, no, listen, as soon as you tell them, do it this way, they go, I want to do it this way. But you have to do it this way. I'm leaving. And off they go. That's why there's not many apprentices and they've got to bring them over from China, etc. What do you think? Because we haven't got enough people. But China's communist. But you know what? Sometimes some countries were protected because even though it was communist and it's bad and Russia was communist and it was bad, in some ways, they were protected because those communist countries didn't allow a lot of Western influence, which was immoral. So they still kind of kept some certain things, and one of their things is work. Of course, the spiritual's lacking, but I'll tell you one thing. Those people, when they do come to orthodoxy, actually come with more fervour than the ones that have been brought up in these type of countries where they've just been taught laziness, self-will, etc., so the most important thing is obedience. What did Adam and Eve do wrong when they were in paradise? They were disobedient. And how do we get paradise again? Through obedience. He had total love, faith and devotion for his elder. He was completely dependent upon him. His will disappeared. In other words, the young evangelist's will disappeared and the elder's will became his will. This is very progressed, obviously, we will not probably get that in our times because that is more in the monastic life that that happens. And that's why monastics actually, we have more monastic saints because they are given this opportunity to be able to devote themselves fully to obedience. Something which in the world doesn't really, we can't have the opportunity to that extent. He, he, um, it is here we find the essence of it all. It is here in his obedience that we discover the secret this is what made him special. This was what made him great. And this is what made him the greatest, one of the greatest saints in the Greek church, in the Orthodox church as well, is his obedience. And that's why I've been talking a lot about the obedience. Not because I want you to, you know, um, if you feel like a glass of water, that you're going to go and ask mum, can I have a glass of water? And, or, you know, things like that. There's, there's basic obedience that children should have and that people should have in general. Let's see what he says about obedience. He goes, obedience, what can I say? I truly, knew, I truly knew the meaning of the word. I abandoned myself to obedience with joy and love. Not zombies, not something which is like uh, the gurus and other religions where they make the person become like, like completely hypnotized and become like, that's not what obedience is. Like when you see a woman being obedient to her husband and she's like a zombie, that's not what God wants. Obedience comes from free. The woman wants to be obedient. And why does she want to be obedient to her husband? Because her husband has love for her 
That's what God says. And takes care of her. And as a result, she wants to be obedient. So we want to make our children obedient. Show them love. And they will be obedient to you because they love you. So there's a lot of things there of what is obedience, not zombie obedience. Not forced obedience. It's got to be coming from within, freely. It, it's, I know it's, it's free to be obedient. It's like, like contrary, but it's not. It was, it was this absolute obedience that saved me, and it was on account of this that God gave me his charismatic gift, which we're going to come to now. God gave him something really special. Yes, I repeat, I was utterly obedient to my elders, not forced obedience, see, but with joy and love. I love them truly, and because I love them, this love made me sense and realise what they wanted. I knew what they wanted even before they asked. And not only that, but also how they wanted each thing done. I went here and I went there. Like whatever they wanted, they, he did, but free. I was devoted to them, and so my soul was winged with joy, inner joy. Not joy because we just saw a fantastic movie. Not joy because we went to Luna Park and rode on the Big Dipper or something and put our hands up. Wow. And then we, and we had some fairy floss. All those things. It's momentary joy. That's what people say. Oh, I went to the disco. Did you have fun? No, I'm still depressed. I went to the cinema. How was it? Was it did, you have, did you have fun? I'm still empty. We went out. We got drunk. We did this. We did that. We did that. But there's still not joy. Joy comes from spiritual life. True joy. I thought of no one else. I didn't think of my parents. I didn't think of my acquaintances, not my friends or the outside world. My life was prayer, joy and obedience to my elders. This is very extreme. As I said, we probably will never experience it to, that, to this extent of what he experienced. However, there's things that we can learn from there. And that is life outside of the church has no joy. And if it was, then why do we have the highest suicide rate, especially in this state for young kids. This is very painful. I'm not saying this easily. Something's missing. I told everything to my elder. Yes, whatever I was thinking, and he from time to time when he saw me strained to extremes, he would tell me delusion. My boy, delusion, like deception, prelest. My elders never ordered me what to do. Now, that's when I read that, I've got to be confused, but I'll explain it in a minute. My elders never ordered me what to do. They gave me a prayer rope and told me, say that prayer. The English is not well done. What it means is that my elders never gave me intense guidance in the spiritual life. The main thing was that they were strict in what to do in the monastic life do this, this is your job, etc. They didn't do the spiritual guidance bit too much because of the fact that first, the most important thing is obedience. And a lot of that comes later. They gave me a prayer rope, told me, say the prayer, nothing more. They say that I was a fanatic and they didn't tell me much, not even what to read. Why do they call him a fanatic? Well, because we're all fanatics. When we first come into the spiritual life, a lot of times we become fanatical. I've said this before. 
Someone comes into the church and all of a sudden they believe that they're going to go and convert everyone and tell people, you've got to come to church, you've got to go to confession, you've got to do prayer, you've got to stop smoking, you've got to stop drinking, you've got to do this. You know, and you just feel like saying, you know, pipe up, just too much. And it makes the people more turn off church. When you see a person in the street holding the, the Bible and say, repent, repent, and all these things, you know, it just really does turn off. That's not what the church is about. So that's what happens. It's zeal. It's just excessive zeal, which comes without, which comes because a person's young in the church. A person can be 60 when they enter the church and still can be fanatical. You've got to calm down, settle down, and, and find the right, the, the right way. So, and one of the ways is not too much inner life, just do basics, humble things. They wouldn't let me read anything from the great fathers, which contain great you know, stories and things. That is St. Ephraim, St. Isaac the Syrian, St. John of the Latter, St. Simeon the New Theologian, and, and the uh, Vergetinos. They had forbidden me. So in obedience, I read only the lives of saints, the Psalter, and the prayer, and the prayer books. And things. That's it. That's all he was told to do. That's why I've got so many lives of saints up there. Um, that, that's why. Practice the same thing. Read lives of saints. Read simple books. Don't read books which are too deep because then it become, you become deceived. So women, for example, they read an ascetical book, so on a nun. And he goes, and the nun, and she was a pure virgin, and she was this, and she was that. And all of a sudden, the woman gets deceived and, and then starts to deny her husband his rights, his, his physical rights. And that causes friction in the marriage. Actually, the church has a canon. If anyone, more women, because women do it more, if a woman denies her husband her right, his rights, in the sexual sphere, one, I'll just say it straight out, then she is excommunicated. What does that mean? She's cut off from the church. She is not allowed to ever commune until she repents. She's cut off from the church. That's how strict the church is on things that are deceptive. If someone fasts to the point that they are getting sick, they are also excommunicated. On some occasions, however, I strayed. I took some initiatives without asking my elders. So again, this thing of being self-willed. Listen, in order to have purity of mind, he brought to himself, I started to learn the Holy Scriptures by heart. I started to read the Gospel of St. Matthew, and he learnt the first chapter off by heart. And one day when opportunity came, he went to his elders, and he read it off by, he actually said it off by heart. When they heard it, they told him off because he hadn't got a blessing to do it. And again, because you might say, oh, that's really good that he learns it off by heart. No, no good. Anything which can lead to deception is no good, even if it looks good. I mean, learning the Bible off by heart, isn't that fantastic? That's what I'm trying to say. A lot of Protestants do that. A lot of Orthodox do that. They can do things off by heart. They can do long prayers. They can do a lot of prostrations. They can, do, uh, they can do prayers off by heart, a lot of things they can do. But if they've got pride, then actually it's a destruction. After two or three years, as he was a, he was a novice, novice means he wasn't a monk, he was, he was um, preparing to become a monk, they give him what's called a trial. After two to three years, his elders decided to tonsure him, to make him a monk. And they gave him the name from Evangelos. His new name became Nikitas, 
because when you become a monk, you get you change name. Usually, a novitiate is about three years. Usually, there's exceptions. Some people become quicker. Some people take longer. But in general, the rule on Manathos is three years, which means he must have been around 15 when he became a monk. That's quite exceptional. You don't make people young. The young monk Nikitas managed to continue his education through the monastic university of the daily cycle of service. The monks call their spiritual life the monastic life, like university, spiritual university. Therefore, the uneducated boy from the village, with only about a first-class education, using his using the holy books as a way to learn his dictionary. Was able, with his love of learning, to educate himself by reading about his beloved Christ. He managed, in only a few years, to learn more than those who have attended schools and universities. What does that mean? He knew more than those who went to universities. Well, we're going to see that as time goes on, from those books, that he actually could speak to doctors and scientists and other people. And even though he never knew anything about the topics, he was able to actually discuss with them. About matters that he had not learnt, but that will come later. Now we see the gr the grace that God gave him because of this obedience. It says here, as I said before earlier, the Holy Fathers say that God wants to give us grace. God wants to give us gifts, spiritual gifts. He wants to. He loves to do that, but a lot of times he doesn't because. We will use it against ourselves. We become proud and we lose ourselves, and that's an important thing. But in this case, God did give him a special gift, and why? Because he had the humility. He could take the gift and not be destroyed with the gift. While, as I said, for us, because we're so easily inclined to pride, if God gives us even a small thing, even tears, for some of us. Tears for our sins. We, some people can say, oh, "I had tears the other night," yeah, and it might have been real thing. But then later on, they use it against themselves and become proud that they have a special gift, and they become proud and they put everyone else down because they got no tears, etc., etc. So this is why a lot of time God does not give. Not that He's stingy, not that He's horrible, but for our own good. Not everything your children ask for you should give. So if you parents As parents, as adults, as human beings, not as God, no. Okay, my child's asking for that lighter. The lighter's useful. Without the lighter, we can't light our our um, oil lamps. We can't light the stoves if we've got gas. Unless you've got those electric buttons now, or whatever. It's useful, but for the child, no good, because he'll burn himself and burn the house down. So. The same as it's useful. The knife's useful. You ever tried to cut bread with your hand, right? That's it. Try and cut it, and at the end, you give it to the person the sandwich was just a whole mess. You can't do it. But the knife is useful. The knife can be dangerous. The fire is useful. The fire can be dangerous. The same as with God. He can give us certain gifts which are good. But mainly, maybe not good for us if we're not spiritually ready. So he holds back because we need humility to be able to accept these gifts. 
And if we don't like people talking about us and we get upset and we hate them, if we want to be the best, if we don't like being told our faults, if we don't like listening to instructions, if we've got those things, then I don't think we have humility. So if we haven't got humility, then don't expect gifts. And if you do get gifts while you've got these problems, then the gift's not from God, it's from the demons who can imitate gifts and make out that they're from God, which we'll come to that later. So this is, how, this is, this is what happened. It was still dark and they were going to the church. The church was locked, so Nikitas, the new the Russell monk, uh, was standing in the corner of the church. And all of a sudden, this old Russian monk came, 90 years old. He used to be a Russian officer in the Tsar's army. And he was very old, but he was a secret saint, best type. Father Dimas was his name, and uh, he looked around, and he couldn't see anybody because the young Nikitas was behind somewhere, and he didn't see him. And all of a sudden... This old Russian monk, and by the way, Manathos has so many saints. The majority of them are not formally recognised by the church, well, sorry, not canonised by the church because they lived in secret, they died in secret. He started making full prostrations, even though he was 90 years old. He started doing the cross, bang on the ground, up and down. They're very, these people were very um, healthy, even though they were old. And he was praying before the doors that were shut there, the, the church doors. While that was happening, divine grace spilled over, like the grace that came onto this old Russian monk spilled over, which is quite exceptional, onto the young monk, onto the young monk Nikitas, who, of course as I said before, was ready to receive the grace because he was humble. His feelings were indescribable. On his way back to the hut, back to his home, after receiving Holy Communion, the Divine Liturgy, his feelings were so intense that he stopped, stretched out his hands, glory to you, O God, glory to you, O God, glory to you. He was filled with the grace of the Holy Spirit. Intense. His experience of divine grace changed his whole person, body, Mind, soul, spirit. And he started to acquire, or he acquired spiritual gifts. And this was given to him by God. But true gifts, not the gifts that we think that these people have, magicians or the other people who think that they communicate with the dead and all those things which I've explained before. Well, in a way, they've got gifts, but there's a difference. They've got demonic gifts. Our saints had Godly gifts. The gifts that the saints had bring people to salvation. The demonic gifts that they have bring people to hell. They have some type of communications, but with demons. Let's see the first sign. This is the first time that he began to notice. Apart from the grace that he felt, something happened one day that he was quite surprised with. What happened to me was something I had never thought of, neither had I ever desired it, nor expected it. This is different. He didn't say to God, I want this gift. He didn't say, I'm worthy to have this gift like we do. 
Like we read something in the book, you go, oh, look, look at that. I want that. I want that. You know, like the child in the supermarket? When they're bashing their hands on the floor and they say, I want, I want. Whether it's a chocolate or whether it's a little toy. That's how we are. I want these gifts because I'm worthy. He didn't want, he didn't even think of it. That's important. My elders had never spoken to me even about the gifts, these gifts of grace. That was their way, he said. That was the way of the elders. They didn't want to explain it much because they didn't want me to fall into deception. And that's why a lot of times we tell people to read books that are karma, be careful, because when you read things that are too deep, you begin to want things that are not really for you or for me. That was their way. They didn't teach me with words, only with their way of life. When I read the lives of saints and ascetics, I saw the gifts that God gave them. Believe me, I never thought that I would receive such some charisma from God, means charisma, like a gift. It never crossed my mind. See the humility? Like that example. Remember the example I said to you? There was an ascetic. I just read it in St. Nikolai, the Serbian's homilies, the prologue. Fantastic book. And um, he has a, every day, a couple of pages every day, and you read them. If you read the writings of St. Nikolai in the prologue every day, just those three pages every day, you will learn everything. Of, you know, it's such, a, such a deep and fantastic book. One, the other few days ago I read that there was a monk. I can't remember the story because I read so much. But anyway, there was a monk and he was praying, I think, and then suddenly an angel came. It wasn't an angel, it was a devil. And the angel supposedly came along and said, God has sent me to you because he's pleased with your, with your ascetical deeds that you're doing and he's sent me to help you. And the monk said simply, I don't even think if the monk actually knew that he was a devil really. And the monk said, maybe you've made a mistake because God wouldn't send an angel to me because I'm too sinful. Maybe you were meant to go to another monk. And when the devil heard that, we say in Greek, eskas, which means he burst out of his evil, he couldn't take it, and off he went because the devil can't stand humility. The more humble we are, the more God protects us. The more proud we are, the more we bring down demons on us. So when we're proud, we become similar to the demons. When we're humble, we become similar to God. So he actually said, I didn't even expect it, which is true. And it never crossed my mind. And that which I never thought of appeared suddenly and I never gave any importance to it. Interesting. So this is what happened. In the evening of the same day, I went out of the church and sat on the low wall looking out to the sea. This time not depressed. It was approaching the time when my elders usually returned. While I was looking to see if they were coming, I saw them suddenly appear. I saw them descending some steps, but the place was far away and I shouldn't normally have been able to see it. I saw them by the grace of God. I was filled with enthusiasm. It was the time that this happened to me. I jumped up and ran to meet them. I, I took their bags. How did you know we were coming? Said the elder to the young monk. I didn't reply. But when we arrived back at the hermitage, I approached the father confessor, Father Pandalimon, and secretly and out of hearing of the, father, the other father, Ioannikos, I said to him, I don't know how to explain it, but when you were on the other side of the hill, I saw you with your bags loaded up, 
and I ran to meet you. The hill was like glass, and I saw you on the other side. In other words, he could see through the mountain, and he could see the elders on the other side. That was the first time that this gift that he received from the old Russian monk came about. And then the elder said, all right, all right, don't give any importance to these things and don't tell anyone because the evil one is watching. So he actually could see through the, the uh, mountain and later on we'll see that he saw a lot of things. He was given a lot of gifts. That was the first one. I don't want to spoil it by telling you the other ones yet, but that was the first one. However, let me explain something here. Even people who have got demonic energy actually could possibly do things similar because the demons actually tell them things which are not known. We've gone through this in all my talks, but because some of you people are new, I have to tell you that in and of itself, that particular gift can be done by someone else, like the gurus or other people that have got these demonic, demonic energy. But the difference being is that one is humble, the other one is demonic. I actually am, I was speaking to someone the other night that rang up from overseas, and her son delves in this demonic stuff. He prays to them every night, 12 o'clock, and he's in communion with them. And she told me from young, he could say things like he would know things that there's no way he would know. And he would, he would quote things from books, names in books, that he had never seen. And later on, obviously, she must have thought it was special when he was young. Oh, my son's gifted. Probably wasn't in the church. But later on, as the child grew up, it was, it was discovered that the boy was in communion with demons. He took once his father to the park because the fa he wanted to prove to his father. I think the father lacked love for him, so I think, which is bad, and he wanted to prove to his father, that, you know, to make, to make his father like him or whatever. So he took him to the park and he said to the father, I can make those lights turn on. And he did. Now, I know it sounds like Harry Potter and all that, but the point is that the Harry Potter stuff, a lot of it is true because it's demonic. Doesn't mean the kids should watch it because it's actually horrible. But this, and then the, the next night, the father went there in the park at the same time to see if the lights go on because he thought maybe his son just knew the exact time but it didn't go on and other things that that would happen and he would often use his his satanic gifts to impress people and he would say to people things that no one knew which is similar to some of the things that the elders did so you can see that sometimes we've got to be careful is it from god or is it from the devil and what's the difference well, the difference is that that particular young fellow had dem has demonic pride. The elders and the saints had humility. One believed in the demons, the other ones believe in God. But even some who believe, or who say that they believe in God, 
could think they believe in God, but in reality believe in the demons without knowing. This is why we need to be close to the church so the church can guide us and help us. He was able through the grace of God to see the past, to see the present, and to see the future. He confirmed that God is all-known and all-powerful. Naturally, he was a human being and received divine grace, which comes from God. And life lived... Now, this is, this is what people might say, how did he do it? How did he do it? And this is the answer what it says here. Life lived in grace is unknown mystery for us. There's no way we can understand it because we haven't got it. And if we try to delve into it, try to investigate it, we actually are in danger of losing our souls because we're going into things that we shouldn't go into. There's no way we can understand that. The elder always pointed out to those who thought that it was something to do with himself. He underlined this fact again and again. And he used to say, it's not something that's learnt. It's not a skill. It's grace. Even Harry Potter had to go to school to learn his demonic stuff using the... The stupid shows. But you see, they went to a school. Well, elders don't go to schools. They don't learn these things. You don't get a book and learn. These things come from God. It's grace. It's the miracle of grace, not learnt. If you remember St. Kiprin, who was a magician, his parents sent him to great magicians in Greece and other places back in those days of the pagans and he learnt the art of black magic. He learnt how to kill people. He learnt how to make couples divorce. He learnt how to make women not have children. He learnt how to make children sick. He learnt, learnt, learnt. He learnt the way to do it. Elders don't learn any of those things because it's from God, it's grace. But to protect him, let's see what happens now. Even though the young Nikitas was given divine grace, he continued in his struggles as before. He didn't say, I'm not going to struggle now because I've got grace. He continued. From 12 years old to 19, while he was on the Mount Athos, he was in good health. And he never dreamed, no thought ever passed his mind that he would ever leave Mount Athos. Why leave? He loved it there. However, one day... He was gathering snails. I still haven't worked out what the snails. They must, did they eat them? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm assuming. What do they do? Does anyone know what they do with snails? Ah, oh, do they? Seems to me vile, but that's because I'm not used to it. But obviously for them, for them it was a, yeah. Some people still eat it. I know they think the, the, the French eat it, but um, no, not for me. Anyway, so... Uh, he went up onto the cliffs and started looking for snails. It just rained, so there was, you know, when, when it rains, the snails come out. And he, and he said in his own words, my ego pushed me. He got proud and he wanted to, to, like a young person, he wanted to gather as many snails as possible. And he had a sack on the back of his head. And he put the snails in there. And it was cold and the saliva from the snails went on his back and he got pleurisy. Now, I don't even know what pleurisy is, so I went onto the internet, checked a few things, and this is what it is. You have chest pain when breathing, cough, chills, shortness of breath, weight loss, poor appetite, 
rapid shallow breaths, you know, like that, inability to take a deep breath, dizziness, tiredness, that's it. That's what produces, that's what he got. So when we get sick and we say, oh, why has God done this to us? Why is he, why are we sick? Why this, why that? Whether psychological, whether demonic, whether physical, whatever we have, it's for our good. And we use these as an example. And we say this holy person, obedient, spiritual, holy, uh, I said that already, didn't I? And he had the gift of the Holy Spirit. And God allowed him even to get sick. But we're going to see later on that it wasn't just this, that later on it was continual. Like when we read the life of Elder Pais just last year, same thing, full of sicknesses, horrible sicknesses. So what happened was that his elders, because in those days in Mount Athos they didn't eat eggs, cheese, milk, especially up there where they were, they were quite, you know, they were very ascetical. Sometimes they didn't even have oil. They led a very strict life in fasting. And this young boy, young man, or boy still isn't it, he needed food. This, this forced the elders to send him back to his parents so that he could get well again by eating good food, eggs, dairy, meat, chicken. See now, again, we have some fanatics, some people who don't have an understanding of spiritual life, who think, well, he's a monk and he should never eat meat or he should never break the fast. And even though he's half dead, he should still keep on fasting. And actually, I read it in one of the books that are over there, that it actually said that there are people who believe that the spiritual life is spirit only and that our bodies have nothing to do with anything. Just don't worry about our bodies. Don't worry about rest. Don't worry about water. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about anything. Just your soul. And that's a heresy. We are body and soul. We take care of our soul. We take care of our bodies. We can't separate the two. Only when we die, the body ceases to function and we have our soul only. And when we are resurrected, then we receive a spiritual body. One that doesn't get sick, one that doesn't need food, one that etc. You know, it's a different thing. These elders were enlightened. They say, you need food. I once went to Jerusalem. I've been a number of times. I went to Jerusalem and that was when I just entered the church. So I can relate. Really energetic. You wouldn't believe it now the way I am. But in those days, I, I, before I came to the church... I was actually into a lot of health things. So I've been through that as well. And juice fasting, I could basically just eat juice for days and days and days. Actually, some people said I look like a carrot because I was like, in carrots all the time. My, my skin became to become like a carrot looking. That's how much I would eat to have juice. So I was that. And I could, yeah. And I, so I would do that and I could exercise and I lost, oof. I got down to um, eight stone. I don't know how many pounds that is, how many kilos that is, but uh, uh, it was very thin. And um, when I came to the church and I heard about fasting, I go, oh, yippee, this, this will be easy for me because I already fast anyway. I don't, I don't care about food. So when I went to Jerusalem, I heard about there was an elder there 
and I went to visit him. Father Nufrus was his name. And they say he's very spiritual, so I ran to see him. Knocked on his door and he looked at me and then he fell over. I didn't even know why he was shocked when he saw me. I couldn't work out. It's like those anorexic people. When they're anorexic, they don't even know. They think they're beautiful, and, but they're really skinny and they look like, like their legs look like two broomsticks. And they're really, but yet they still think that they're sexy and beautiful and things like that. So anyway, I must have been very thin because he, um, he fell over. He took me in and he started to speak to me and I said to him, I want to become a monk. What do you think, etc.? And he said to me, um, you can't go to Manathos. I go, I go, why? He goes, because you're sick. I go, I'm sick. How am I sick? He goes, you won't be able to fast. And I go, but I do fast. I, I fast in now. I do a lot fast. It's very easy for me. See, enthusiasm, pride, etc. And he goes, you're not gonna, you know what? And because I was so proud, I didn't even believe him. I said, I don't, you know, I was very young then. I just, just entered the church and uh, disobedient. So that's why I know that's very bad and you can lose yourself. Later on, when I went back in years to come, I asked him, he said to himself, he goes, when I first saw you, he goes, I was shocked. I go, why? He goes, you were so skinny and you were so sick. And later on, he was correct. Because when I went to a monastery and I began to, just to keep the ordinary fast, I actually got sick and then they sent me to a doctor and then the doctor said to the abbot, he says, I've just got to give you some advice, he said to the abbot, about this young fellow, which was me. He goes, get a coffin ready because basically he's not going to live. Right? So the elder knew, but the problem was that when you're not in the church and you're doing things, a lot of times the demons can help us. They can help us not eat. They can help us do a lot of exercise. They can help us do a lot of things. And I believe, and you'll notice from my own experience, whatever we were proud of when we were young, and if God really loves us, he'll give us the opposite to what we were proud of. If we were proud of that we were good-looking, just to say, then, because I, I remember someone who was actually quite proud that they were a very good-looking person, and later on they became ugly. And I said, that's from God. That's good for you. And then if you're proud that you're thin, then God will make you fat. And if you're proud that you're healthy, then God will make you sick. And if you're proud that you're smart, then God can make you stupid. And if you, you know, things like that. So you, that, and these things are for our good. So when I say that the demons can help us fast, they can help us fast. So off he goes to the monastery, sorry, back home to his parents. Let's see what happened. With my heart racing, I set out to meet my father. So he arrived at the village. I hadn't seen him for many years. As I've told you, he'd been away in America for years, so he never even saw him when he was younger much. When I saw him, I recognised him at once. But how could he possibly recognise me, a monk with long hair? Actually, his hair was down to his back. Um, a great long beard, and I felt embarrassed, and so I had hidden my hair and beard inside my cassock. So he hid his beard inside his rasta there. I was, moreover, I was skin and bone as a result of my illness. I greeted him and said, and, and he said, Who are you? Where are you from? And he said, I'm a monk. Then I asked, Do you have any family? How many children do you have? And then his father said, I had four. But one of my sons disappeared years ago. 
We lost him. He was working in Paris and he disappeared. So he said, in Paris, what was his name? Evangelius. Evangelos. Evangelius, he used to be my friend. And then the father said, tell me, you know, do, do you know where he is? He died. Uh, my father was heartbroken. He started to weep. I couldn't bear it. If I had been made of steel, I would have melted. I started to cry and my heart was racing. I couldn't bear to see my father's heart so distressed. And so he said, it's me, Evangelos. Imagine what took place at that moment. Joy and tears mixed together. We embraced and full of emotion, we set out for the house to see my mother. My mother, however, was unforgiving. When she saw me, she told me off. She had no mercy. She regarded it as a great affront that one of her children become a monk. The mother was embarrassed that one of her children actually become a monk. And that's true. Some parents are like that. My mother was happy. Other parents go crazy. I remember once when I went to Tenareka, I think it's called, in Serbia, Black River. There's a monastery there. It's built up on a cliff. And we went there. This was before the now Bishop Artemis was when he was abbot there. Beautiful monastery there where St. Um, Peter's there. And uh, they told the stories, the monks. I wasn't a monk then. They told the story. And that one mother, she came to the monastery to get her son out. And she actually said that if, you, if the son didn't come, that she was going to jump off the cliff. These are the great temptations. And it's, the, you know, it's an emotional thing because they're mothers, but it's also the demons use that emotion on them to take their children away from the monastery because the demons do not want people to become monks. People learned about my homecoming. Various people would come to see me. I was a young man. Before I'd become ill, I had been quite like a healthy person and handsome before I became ill. But now my face did not have a worldly beauty. It was a godly beauty. So even though he was sick, but he still had a spiritual radiance, which a lot of times people, some people don't pick that up. Remember Christ, even though he was God, and it was prophesied that, that no one looked at him as being anything special even though he was God. Worldly people a lot of times don't pick up. But sometimes even spiritual people, they don't show. Sometimes you can see a, a saint where he looks completely ordinary. Sometimes this light radiance comes off them. But these people of the villages, you know, they weren't very religious, and um, as can be seen by the way they reacted. And now I was back in the world... Um, everyone was commenting about me, about my hair, because it was very long. I hadn't cut my hair from the day I left for the Holy Mountain. My hair had grown and now it reached my waist. There was a great fuss in the village, so in order not to cut it, I boiled a pot of water and put my, head, my hair in it and left it to boil for a long time and the hair fell out. Um, I don't understand why he did that. I got a feeling that in those days, those monks up there that used to live in those places, they, it was a sin for them to cut their hair. And he didn't want to cut it, but these people were making a fuss about it. And I think he, maybe they were amazed or maybe they were making fun of him. I don't know what was going on. But anyway, he, took, he, he made it fall out, a lot of it. The eldest said, people would come to see him in the village. It was, it was put about that Lunida's son had returned, who had disappeared, and they thought that I was dead, and returned from the, from the mountain where he became a hermit. 
People came to see me out of curiosity. I said nothing. I felt really embarrassed. I went to the church in the village. Everyone poked fun at me. My mother was ashamed. She wept and bewailed and she, you know, oh, woe is me. I've lost my son. My son's become a monk and things like that. Sometimes they even pull their hair. They fall on the ground. They over, you know, they really do drama. Maybe they should have played in movies. The poor woman couldn't bear to set eyes on me. She didn't want me and forced me to leave the house. She didn't even want him in the house. That's how much she reacted to him becoming a monastic. And that's why monastics and family don't mix. When you become a monk, better not to have much to do with family because it just doesn't mix. There are exceptions which we'll see soon, but in general, it doesn't mix. To begin with, my aunt took me in, in the village. They asked her to have good food, milk, cheese, eggs and meat and chicken, whatever, to recover from my illness. But I couldn't stay there for long because I wanted a different environment. I wanted, I, I, what was I to do in the house? Moreover, I was embarrassed because I had n really done nothing for my family. I left when I was young. I didn't do anything for them. And why should I put them now to take care of me? How, how could I now ask them to look after me? So it wasn't a very nice meeting. Maybe a nice meeting with his father, but not a good meeting with his mother and not a good meeting with his relatives. Actually, when I came back after I was made a monk, I remember my neighbour said to me, um, I'm very disappointed. I expected greater things from you. Anyway, so what could I say? I um, walked off and left her in her misery because obviously she, does, she doesn't know what monasticism is. When you've got a monastic in your family, it's a great thing because the monastic prays for the family. It's a, it's, a, it's a very, very great thing. But we'll see. Maybe the mother might change. Maybe she might die unrepentant. He found out that there was about four or five hours away, there was a monastery called St. Haralamos. And he said to his father to take him there. So he took him there and he met a priest in the town Aliveri who telephoned the bishop of the area and said, look, we've got a monk from Anathos. And the bishop said, don't lose him. Keep hold of him, Papa Yanis, Papa meaning priest. Don't let him leave us. Some bishops are positive towards monastics. Some bishops are negative and they don't like them. Some do not have any monasteries. Some have a lot of monasteries. A diocese, a city that has a monastery, St. John Chrysostom says, when the monasteries are full, the jails are empty, the hospitals are empty. When there's no monasteries, when there's no monks and nuns to pray for the people, then the jails are full, people are sick, crime, destruction. That's how powerful monasteries are. This bishop, he knew. They went off. I went to kiss my mother's hand and she pulled away. She wouldn't give it, she wouldn't let me kiss her hand. My father then took me to the monastery of St. Alambos. The abbot gave me a warm welcome. He liked and spoke to me. When I told him of my difficulties, he said, stay here, we've got eggs, we've got milk, we've got chickens, we've got everything. We will help you to get better. And so I stayed there. The abbot was so fond of me that he cooked special food for me. To begin with, I didn't have any appetite. But gradually I recovered. Now some people today 
also have gone through some mental problems, some demonic problems, and I always advise people, slow, rest, eat, be careful. Now, some people might say, oh, if you've got a demonic problem, you should do a lot of fasting. And for some people, yes. For some people, no. That's where you need the discernment. And they say, oh, look, the saints used to sleep only a little bit. So therefore, we should, sleep, we should sleep a little bit. For some people, yes. For some people, no. I believe most, a lot of people now are burnt out. They're burnt out from sin. They're burnt out from internet. They're burnt out from mental problems, anxieties, a lot of problems. Sin, burnt out. They need to recover. And I believe that those people should eat well and rest well and recover physically before they enter into really deeper spiritual and more heavy type of spiritual life. When I felt better, I went back to the Holy Mountain. My elders were overjoyed, but after 10 or 13 days, I got sick again. I lost my appetite, I, I grew pale, and others went white, lost weight, became exhausted, and all he could eat was vermicelli, which in Greek I think is fider, like a little noodle soup type of thing. I had UC because I uh, became seriously ill. Once again, I obtained permission to leave and set off for the monastery of Sadhana So he left again now from the Holy Mountain, second time. And at the San Halambos monastery near his village, I had eggs, cheese, butter and so on, and then I recovered. After three months, I returned back again to the Holy Mountain. This is now the third time he returned. No. Twice, I think. Three times I went and returned, but each time after 10 or 13 days, I suffered relapse. The third time, my elders said to me, we have a responsibility for your health. We can't help you. We love you. We want you. But God has shown that you must leave, that you don't die. In other words, he couldn't stay anymore, and he had to go back into the world, to a monastery in the world where he could eat more. And so I left the holy mountain for good. I went to St. Halalambos Monastery. All the people there wanted me. They were fond of me and were pleased that I returned. Once again, they gave me milk cheese and things like that. This is what we call divine providence. Sometimes someone goes to a monastery and stays there forever. Sometimes something happens and they've got to go. They might end up there. How he ended up with his family. Then he ended up being in his own island. Things like that. All these things are in God's plan. Why? We don't know. Maybe we'll see as we, as we go. Now, let's see what happened to his mum. Let me tell you something important that I remember. There was a monk on the holy mountain who was called Father Joachim, and he lived in the hermitage of St. Neil. Now, he wrote a letter. He must have found out that his mum was very bad to the young monk. And he wrote a letter, really strict letter to his mum, and said, he wrote that even the wild beasts love their children. Even animals love their children. He wrote a lot, fine things certainly, but very harsh. And, this, and so my mother was really crushed from that letter. Later, however, she changed. She devoted herself to the church, which means doesn't sound like she was a church person. The husband was. Her husband was, but not her. When later on he became a priest, he's saying, because he becomes a priest later on, he said, when I would serve liturgy, she would sit opposite me. She would cross her arms and pray. She was always looking at me. She didn't take her eyes off me at all. 
and she would say loudly and proudly, my priest. In a village, Sakei village, where I stayed for a short time after my ordination, they used to call my mum Papadia, which really means the priest's wife. But sometimes they even call the mothers of the priest, and they used to call her Papadia, Matushka. And then they would kiss her hand, and she would glow with pride. I was with her when she died. I should have made all my children monks, she used to say. Before she goes, woe is me that my son become a monk, and she couldn't stand him and hated him in a way for it. When then she said, I should have made all my children monastics. And, she, and I took it all very badly to begin with. I wish now all my children had become monks. But one I, I remember when I was in Greece, I went to a monastery and um, I saw a man there, an old man. I go, what are, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, my, my sons are here. Okay, so what do you do? I come often to help a little bit at the monastery, like Father was saying that we should help the monasteries and get blessings. Serbian monasteries, Russian monasteries, all monasteries. He goes, what happened was that my son came here to become a monk. And I went crazy. And I came here to take him back, to get him out of the monastery. You know, in Greece, I don't know if you know this, but they go to newspapers, they go to set fire to monasteries, they come and hit the monks. They all oh, big, big problems. People go absolutely, absolutely mad. And um, so he went there probably to cause trouble to get his son out. And what happened was that his other son also became a monk there. So at the end of the day, both of his both his sons became monks, and he loved the fact that his sons were monks and he became, and he was there. So in the beginning, sometimes people are against, but a lot of them change. Okay, that's it for today. That's the first part of the life of Elder Porfirios. And uh, next month, God willing, we go on to when he becomes a priest and etc., etc., and we see more and more of his great gifts that he had and the people that he helped. And there's, you know, and there's a lot of interesting uh, stories that you will find beneficial. Are there any questions? Oh, yeah, I just wanted to say um, I found it really useful work today when you see the comparison of the knife and the lighter. I think that was a really um, good example of the gifts because one of the, um, I guess, the issues that people have these days in the church is they say, you know, how come there's no miracles? You know, they use that as proof that you know, it's all but basically, what you said, you know, it shows how, um, contrary to what people think, like miracles, that they can sometimes be detrimental, detrimental now. Actually, there are people who've converted because of a miracle, a lot of times can actually fall away yeah. after. Because they're basing their conversion on miracles. Some people don't, but the church is full of miracles continually. Priests perform miracles continually. I have seen so many and I'm you know I'm not gonna hide the fact that that is but I don't look at those things as being 
um, something to just emphasize. You know, I can, when I first did talks when I was a layperson, I used to speak about a lot of the miracles of the Orthodox Church. And I still do, but I don't, I don't just do that. You know, a lot of people become enthusiastic. Like, for example, the holy light in Jerusalem. The holy light comes. It lights up on Easter Saturday. Only the Orthodox Patriarch can do it. The Greek Orthodox Patriarch can do it. No one else can light it. When the people get that, that light, the flame doesn't burn. Okay, you can explain that to them. They get, and you see it on video, and there's people here that have been there. They hold in 33 candles. And the flame is really big flame. And you see it on the video, or those who have seen it, and they're putting the flame in their face, they don't get burned. For the first few minutes. That's a miracle. Holy water. Orthodox holy water does not smell. The Catholics put salt in it. We have miraculous icons. We have the relics of saints whose bodies don't decompose. We have a lot of things. But if you're, gonna, if you're going to base your spiritual life just on miracles, then you might as well go to India because they do some type of miracles too. And um, then you might just, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go and become um, a Hindu or something, or a Buddhist, or whatever. Muslims have miracles. Everyone's got miracles. But the point is that the Orthodox miracles are something special and they have an effect on the soul of the person. But just to be on the miracles. Christ didn't just do miracles, he also taught. He also showed love. He also gave commandments to do. He wasn't just miracles. So you are, you are um, correct, because you remember that from another talk that I actually said, just, just miracles is not enough. We can go to a magician and they can say, your name. They can say something about your family. How do they know? And people say, oh, look, they're good. I'm going to go to them. Because they think, how would he know? Or how does she know these things? Because the demons tell them. Any other questions? Yes, Helen. A bit louder, sorry. The question is, when disciplining children, how far do we go, especially with corporal punishment, which is hitting and things like that? I'm not against that physical, a bit of physical punishment. But the problem that I find with people today is because they were punished a lot when they were young, they believe that the only way to discipline is to do the same thing. So I remember once I was dealing with a man who was married, had a, couple, you know, a few kids, and you know, I, I kind of asked a few questions and found out that basically he was smacking the child like 50 times a day. It's just, just, I said, don't do it at all. Because if you can't, and plus you've got to be in control and you've got to know the age and you've got to know when. For example, the other day I was with someone who had a child and the child was going berserk and it wouldn't listen. And then, uh, the, and, and the father, which was good, at least he noticed that, he goes, uh, I go, why is he going crazy for? And he said, oh, because he hasn't slept, he hasn't had his afternoon nap, he's just he's lost it. What, are you going to hit a child when it's gone crazy because it hasn't slept or because its sugar levels have gone down and it's going berserk? See, that's what I mean. So parents a lot of times don't know, so they're smacking their children for nothing. And, they've got, and when they do smack, they've got no control and they're hitting, hitting, hitting. 
And then they can hit so hard that you can dislocate the child's um, bones and things like that. You've got to be very, very careful of these things. So yes and no. When I first became a teacher, I have to admit, I used to use the cane. But later on when it was banned, I found other ways to do it and I didn't have to really use that method. I just developed other methods. The main method that I used to discipline was to show the students that I cared and that I'm there for them and I really dedicated myself to them. And when they saw themselves benefiting and progressing in there, because I was a maths teacher, and they started to do well in their maths, then they began to respect, and basically the discipline problems went down. There was hardly nothing, any here and there, and then I would use maybe detention or something like that, but after school. So I didn't have to use that. Firstly, we weren't allowed anymore. And plus, when I was young, I thought that was the way, but it wasn't the way. I could have used other ways. So it's the same. We're hitting our children for reasons sometimes when it's unnecessary or we cause a problem. We've got a little vase there. Look, we have a vase. Say that's a vase. And the vase is on the table. And the child keeps on going close to the table. And then we hit the child's hand. Don't touch, don't touch, don't touch, don't touch. It's very simple. You take the vase away and you put it up by and it's the end of the discipline. Why smash the child 10, 15 times? But this is what I'm saying. Parents today have no idea of how to discipline their children and they're making, they're causing problems. And that's why I say to some parents, better not to hit. Be careful of that because you can overdo it and destroy the child. But Elder Porfirios does speak about that and we'll be doing that in future talks of what he says. A lot of times our children are bad because of our sins. How many parents, parents have told me, they go, I did a sin. And as soon as I did that sin, I noticed my children became all disobedient. I had bad thoughts. I had hate for someone. And what happened? My kids went crazy, but they don't even know what I had. So what are you going to hit the kid when it's your fault? That needs a lot of discussion, yes? That father that I said to you about his children, how he said that he can't get his children to do work, um, I forgot to mention, which I remembered later on, but it was a bit out of comment, but you reminded me. Uh, he himself is lazy. He doesn't help his wife. It's like a slob. So he doesn't help his wife, and his children saw that all their life. So how are they then going to imitate? What are they going to imitate? What are they learning from? They're learning from him. So that's why they don't do it. So for our children to be hardworking, the parents also have to be hardworking and be an example. You don't have to teach a child. You have to say with words, when you grow up, you have to do a lot of work. They need words. All you need is example. When the mother takes care of the house, cleans the house, the father does things, etc., etc., the children see that and they begin to imitate it. That's the main thing is imitation. But there's more, as we'll say, we'll go to it more, but learning by example is a very big thing. Then any more? Helen? You have a question? Father, yes. Yeah. Well, you 
The word I think you were trying to find is to be consistent. Because sometimes someone gives a punishment and they don't even see if the child's even done it and goes away and forgets. The child waits for you to forget and doesn't do anything. Uh, those, um, I think this, that topic, those, thanks very much for those good words. That's, um, from my own experience, yes, you can punish a child, as I said, I haven't got children, but as a teacher, you can punish a child out of frustration which is no good, doesn't get anything and the child hates you, but you can also punish the child out of care. And the child sees that you care, then it will not hate you, but it will respect you. If the child sees that you're doing it because you, and you show hate towards the child or dislike, it's not going to work. And to be consistent, like Father said, this is a topic, a very big topic. Bringing up children, the last thing I want to say is bringing up children is the most difficult thing. And there are people today who are not in any way in a position to do that. They haven't got the abilities, the ability to actually bring up children. And you see a lot of people, women for example, they want to go and study and do all these things. Okay, that's what they want to do. But what Father was just saying then, all these things, we need a lot of work to work with our children. A lot of attention, a lot of focus, thinking. You've got to look at their diet, you've got to look at their health, you've got to look at what's going on in the world, the influence. You've got to read spiritual books, you've got to pray to God to help you bring up your children. All this is a full-time job. Now, if women can do that and work or study or whatever at the same time and get high positions, then tell me your secret. Because I know women that stay home that actually said it's full time. It's just full time. And you might say, well, why doesn't the husband take care of the child? Psychologists now start to see a child becomes more inclined to his father around five, six. When they're young, it's the mother. The main emphasis is the mother. That's full time. A lot of study, a lot of prayer, a lot of work, a lot of focus, a lot of advice, getting advice, etc. There's just so much work bringing up children, but people have it as being the low priority and getting a job or getting something else or getting a big house or getting a nice car or whatever else. They're all high priorities. But bringing up children is low priority and then we wonder why our children are a mess. And discipline, what Father was saying now, I have to admit, I got tense because I didn't want to go into that detail and not what he did was wrong. I'll tell you why. Because 
the topic is, I understand that that topic is so great that I would need really to do it. We need hours and months and months and months and months of work. It's not as simple as that. What Father said was correct, but I got anxiety because I know how hard it is. He gave a little bit of advice, but that's just that much. There is so much more. And that's what you need to know, especially if you've got young children. So he prays for them. We learned about praise today. We learned about, we've got to be careful. When do the children start fasting? Are they ready? Elder Paisos, the elder that we did last week, last year, he actually said that today food hasn't even got the proper nutrition anymore because of chemicals and fertilizers and all these hormones that they use. And therefore, in the old days, when someone says, I had a slice of bread and I fasted, the bread filled them up. Today you have a slice of bread and it's like you just had a, like air. It's nothing. It's empty. The fruit's empty. And we've got to be careful. What people could do in the villages a few years ago can't be done a lot now because things are not natural. So you've got to be careful that you could be making children fast, for example, when they're not physically up to it. Some children might be a bit sick and they might need some meat more than normal. You can't, you've got to be careful. You might say, oh, they're going to do the whole post, the whole fast for two months, no meat. And at the end, you know, you wonder why the birds are flying away because your child looks like a scarecrow in the, when, it, when it goes out in the garden because it's sick. You've got to be very careful of these things. Is that it? Any more? Yes? Who? Say to who? Oh, to a child. Yeah. Well, you, first of all, you have to bring up the children to listen to us and to trust us, and that from young, so that when you speak, you speak, and the child listens. But of course, that doesn't happen now because there's so much influence. And when you send a child to school early, yeah. actually, someone actually gave me this, which was in a which was in a magazine, not religious magazine, actually called Sydney's Child, which is a sec... I think, is it Sydney's Child? Where was it? Where was it? Oh, whatever, anyway. It, was from a, it wasn't from a religious book. And what I've been saying for years, which has been that you don't start children off young at school, it makes them worse. And actually here it's talking about um, Finland, where they start the children off at seven, but for the first year they just do games. That means that they start learning at eight, which is, which is what I believe. Because when you read a lot of the saints' books and, and things like that, and when you look at the ancient countries... Education really started around seven, eight years old, not at five, where they're teaching the child to write its name at five. Oh, sorry, I forgot. Now they teach them even at one month old. And because all these new, all these new theories now, or maybe they even teach them when they're still in the womb, how they're going to insert, the, maybe they insert the pen through the belly button. Um, and then we say, it says here that actually the, that what they do in Finland, is it Finland? can't even see, but they actually teach, the, they make the children go to an older age and they said that education-wise, they are far superior and they really do better, much better than a lot of other children. And that's um, 
uh, secular. So why send our children young to school and they get influence when they're so young that whatever they're told, they come home and they say, we told this and we told that. You know, if you're going to, if you have to send, you can do homeschooling, but if you have to send your children to school, send them at an older age, they should be more with you when they're young so that you can teach them, make them stronger. Remember what I said to you about communism? That the saints in the Russian catacomb church in Russia during communism, they said to the Orthodox Christians, send your children to school about eight. Don't send them young. Because when, they, when you send them younger than that and they teach them atheism, the child will be too young and it will believe what the teacher says. But when the child goes at around eight years old, by that age, the child can actually be taught about God and the faith. And if they're told things, they can actually reject it mentally. But when they're young, they don't know how to reject because they're too young. They don't know the difference between right and wrong. They're very young. The child should be close to the mother up to around the age of seven, eight, not send them to strangers to fill them up with pollution. Does that answer your question? Okay, anything? nothing else? When the elder told his spiritual father about he saw through the mountain, yes? Didn't he just say to him, who, what, did the, what did the young monk say to his spiritual father? No, oh, he said, don't take any notice of it and watch out because the devil is also looking, meaning I think the spiritual father understood that it was a gift, but he didn't want to em- put an emphasis on it because he didn't want the young boy to get proud. And he just said, okay, don't take any notice of it and, um, and be careful because the devil's looking, meaning that the devil can attack you and start making you have pride and lose yourself and what turned out to be a gift can turn out to be for your destruction. Does that answer your question? Okay. So I have with me today um, some little laminates which we produced for you on elder on the elder so you can take home with you. Now remember he's not been canonized by the church as yet because usually it might take 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, depends on the church. And that's why I still did the prayer for the dead in the church today after the paraclysis, because that's the way we do it in the church. We can only do panahidas, which is memorial prayers for the dead. We can't do a prayer where we're praying to him, because he hasn't been canonised yet. But you people, all of us, privately, if we have the faith, can pray to him if you feel that faith, asking God through him to help you. Maybe I'm giving you the pictures a bit early, but as you'll notice as the next talk, this man was a very great man, a very, very gifted man. He helped, he helped a lot of people. And actually they say that if he helped so many people when he was alive, now that he's gone, he actually has more power than what he had. So it's good if you feel like it, you can pray or just have it there as a blessing, whatever you feel like. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. Amen.